Hi everyone, this is Frank Forza. I'm here with my good friend and my jiu-jitsu mentor, Robert Drysdale. We are going to shoot a podcast today. We've done a few others. If you can get your hands on it, on the Life Jitsu podcast. We've done a YouTube interview a few years back, which was really good. Um, you know, Robert and I are both very philosophy-minded. We both enjoy writing. I think Robert is very creative. Um, I would categorize him as a renaissance man. He's got a lot of talents. He plays guitar. He sings. He's, um, he's a voracious reader. He's a writer. He's a TV commentator. And he's best known as a very world-accomplished, world-champion jiu-jitsu player. Um, and, and, I, and it's interesting for me to see him evolve because I see him... Um, you know, I, I think of him almost like a college professor. He's kind of got that vein, that air about him. Um, if he wasn't doing jujitsu, I think he'd be that kind of person, a PhD, a professor, a writer, a lecturer. Um, I, I sort of see that in his blood. So, and a historian. So I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to have this conversation with Robert. We're going to be wide ranging. We're going to talk about a lot of things from motivation to some of you know how he's interpreting and processing how both of us are interpreting and processing this historic events that are there um, fatherhood we're going to talk about coaching styles leadership styles and of course for me my background um, I was fortunate about 10 years ago to get my black belt from Robert Drysdale that was a one of the best days of my life one of the most emotional days of my life my background is I was a philosophy major and a philosophy graduate University of Maryland I've been sort of tackling the big questions in philosophy, the life questions. Who am I? How did we get here? How do I know epistemology? Um, on and on and on. Then I was a journalist in, in newspapers and in TV, covered a wide range of things. And of course, I've been wrestling for a long time. A lot of sports. Sports were very big for me. And now I've gone even deeper into sort of the nutrition rabbit holes and other rabbit holes. So I don't mind Robert when these conversations jump around I invite it I just want us to uh, you know I like that Robert you see the world differently than a lot of people Robert and I have you we have that in common Robert where we're not we don't have cookie cutter perspectives we're not just trying to fit in we're not just trying to please everybody we're ver both very uh, very loyal to pursuing our own truths even if it's unpopular. So, uh, Robert, my good friend, welcome to the Frank Forza Show. Thanks for having me, Frank. It's great to be back. Uh, thank you for the kind words. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited to be here and be able to you know, share, some, share some of my thoughts with you and your, your audience. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Well, it was fun the last for the first two, uh, first two times, so I'm sure it's going to be fun again. Yeah, our one was called, uh, what is it called, um, something, uh, you know, Two Black Belts and a Mic. That's one of the podcasts to dig up. We had some pretty good stuff there. We were at the, the Drysdale Ranch there in Las Vegas, and I got to meet your, you know, your 150-pound dog and see your library, your book library. You've got a little burgeoning uh, little library going there. Um, the, the Drysdale compound, you were smoking cigars and making, you know, protein shakes. I got to see how you're living. But now we're remote. I'm actually in Utah in the mountains of nature. Robert is back there in Vegas. Robert, what's what's top of mind for you right now? What does your day look like right now? You know, it's 
crazy when this whole pandemic started. I'm like, okay, I can't leave the house. You know, the first week or two, I did close to nothing. It was like a state of like borderline depression. Like, you know, I'm gonna lose. It's all gone. You know, because your debt, your bills keep coming. You know, I never expected any help from the government or anything like that. You know, I kind of my instincts always told me that the help was gonna go to you know, big corporations before they help the small businesses. That seems, that seems to be Uncle Sam's, you know, MO, you know, throughout throughout its most recent history. So I wasn't too, you know, I wasn't expecting any help. And, you know, I just, I, I had just signed a lease in Henderson. I, like about a week before the lockdown. Mm-hmm. So, you know, horrible timing, a story of my life. So there was a little bit of a, um, you know, very worrisome, you know, period there. And, I just kind of stayed at home and didn't do much. And then what came from that was kind of like this effort mentality where I'm just going to go, I'm going to make the best out of this, and I'm just going to, you know, try to make use my time as intelligently as possible. And I did get to work a little bit, but I started playing the guitar. I told myself I was going to learn how to play the guitar, and I was going to learn how to read Shakespeare. And that's kind of what keeps my mind busy since <laughs> during the lockdown. I've been, you know, focusing on those two things. But, Still working, you know. I still, you know, I still, I do uh, live YouTube um, uh, classes every every Monday through Thursday at 5 p.m. Um, I still talk to my friends on the phone. People like, you know, affiliates calling students. You know, I'm still. I used to have to manage the gym because the bills are still cut. So there's some work there, even though my staff hasn't been working recently. So. You know, life goes on, but I'm just trying to make intelligent use of the time. And I told myself that I'm going to walk out of this lockdown with some new skills and a different mindset. There's been a lot of self-reflection, so in some ways it's almost been a good thing. Like, it, it's weird because I'm split about it because the, the economic side, obviously, is, is very hard to deal with. You know, like I'm accumulating debt at this point and living off of savings. And it's, it's not an easy thing to, to accept. You know, we're, we're used to moving forward with everything we do. When you go backwards, it hurts way more than going forward. Going forward feels natural. Mm-hmm. So there's that half. And then there's the other half that I actually learned that I really enjoy being by myself. Mm-hmm. Like, I love my alone time. Like, it's very, don't get me wrong, I'm not a loner. Like, I do like to interact with people, but I really appreciate being alone in my room and I just close the door and music, you know, my books, and I'll go walk the dog. I've been walking a dog every day, which is really nice. I kind of like it. There's a part of me that really likes to walk down. Yeah, I think a lot of people have mixed feelings. I mean, you know, Napoleon Hill, who interviewed those 500 or so richest people in the world, and they gave him a lot of the, you know, a lot of secrets. It's a book worth reading. Actually, one of your former students, uh, Jacob Cherington, who's a friend of both of ours, a good friend of yours. You've known Jacob forever. Jacob recommended that book, and it is a phenomenal book. And one of the big, one of the big takeaways for me there was basically Napoleon Hill's quote. I'm paraphrasing is every misfortune is pregnant with equal or greater good fortune basically translated every adversity contains equal opportunity or equal advantage and that's you know that's this is a double-edged sword right I mean this is like on the one hand you look at some of the things you're going on that are going on you look at some of the data you look at some of the narratives out there and any thinking person to me has to be like oh my this just doesn't add up what's going on is there an agenda behind this, right? There's a lot of any kind of deep thinker. If you sort of <clears throat> poke into it, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's messy. But on the other hand, you're thinking, well, what am I going to do? 
and you're here and you're grounded and definitely the world has definitely come, I'm relatively speaking, to, to sort of a standstill, right? I mean, it's just, it's not, it's like, it, it is more peaceful. It's more, it, it's more reflective. And so for me out here in Utah, I think I lucked out being in Utah. So I'm close to a river. I've got the sunshine. I've got mountains. I've got bike trails and, you know, working out on the grass. There's a bunch of parks here, right? Because it's like Kidville and Family City, USA. So there's a, just a park on every every couple of blocks. So for, you know, I always say, Robert, like it, it is true. And, and I think you can speak to this is that one thing that something like this did, and I think that you and I, at least I did this in my life where I've hit rock bottom before and then I hit, and then when I thought I was at rock bottom, I hit a deeper rock bottom. And I was like, oh my God, I guess this is rock bottom. And then when I thought I had hit rock bottom, I hit a deeper rock bottom. I was like, wow, there's a, there's a, I didn't hit bottom before, right? But yeah, you're like, well, damn, like redefining rock bottom, right? Like, and, and so, but the interesting thing is that is the, the beautiful thing I call it the upside of zero. The upside of zero is that it really does, and this is a buzzword now, and it's ironic, it's poetic, <clears throat> that you really do see what's essential. It's like, yeah. what's essential? What matters? It peels away all the BS, like you're saying, with the solitude. It peels away all the, all the BS, all the all the extraneous, and you're like, what really matters? What would I really do? Like, how would I really spend my time? You know, it's, that's, it's funny to say that, because it's kind of how I, I feel about it, too. It has been like a, a reawakening in some way. And like, I'm trying to spend less time on my phone. I'd realized those two weeks where I wasn't doing well, and everything kind of stopped. I realized that I was spending a lot of my time on my phone and doing mindless things. And, I even started playing video games for a minute there, and then I kind of just like stopped all that. I'm like, no, I'm going to do something productive. And I, I think that it has been because of quiet allows you to think more. You go quiet inside, and the quieter it is, the easier it is to think. You begin to think clearly when it's quiet. You know, so I, I live a very hectic life, as you know. Like I, I work too much if anything. I need more breaks, and this has been like a well-deserved vacation in some way, where I feel that I can. There's a lot of a lot of self-reflection, and you do start realizing what's important. So obviously, I miss my kids. You know, number one, like I'm happiest when I'm with my two daughters. You know, I don't get to see them a lot, but um, there's that. And then there's you know the there, I need looking at you know do I what what would be me without jujitsu? Okay, so there's this social distancing thing. Let's say let's assume the DJJ no longer exists. Oh my dude, you gotta think that. You gotta think so that. Long. And now I'm looking at this and I'm going, okay, who would I be without BJJ? And I'm able to, for like just a picture for a second, Robert without BJJ in his life. Okay, we can't train. All gyms are out of business. BJJ is made illegal because of the coronavirus, right? Hypothetical. Who am I? And I'm able to see myself without that identity. And I like what I see. I'm like, no, I can, I can actually do this or I can do that. And I am not chained to jujitsu. Like, it's not something that, that defines me entirely. It's only a piece of my identity. So, you know, and it's been a way, it's given me a lot of confidence in a lot of ways. You know, like, I, I am better, I am well beyond what people think. I, I can do more than what people think I can do. You know, they're not just a jiu-jitsu coach. So that has been very positive. And, you know, it's been, uh, you know, somewhat, somewhat spiritual, I'd say. Not in a religious way. You know, I'm not religious, but it's been spiritual in the sense where, um, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to find a peaceful balance between my ambition and, you know, being happy. Like, I'm ready to, to be happy and accept that I'm not going to accomplish everything I want to accomplish. It doesn't make me less ambitious, but it still gets you, you accept that, you know, your ambition sometimes is just too delusional and out of touch with reality, and that's okay. It's who I am. But there's also accepting. I'm not. I'm not upset at myself because of that. So I've been striking to to find a balance. I bumped into this audio on YouTube accidentally. A lot of times before I go to bed, I'll put like some philosophy and history like uh, um, audios on YouTube, and I'll just play it before I go to bed. It goes me to sleep. And I accidentally, it's kind of random, right? So they put one that was on Tao Te Ching, you know, like Lao Tse's book, which I had read as a teenager, but it made no sense to me at all at the time. Too much. I was too much of a materialist at that time to understand anything beyond what was, you know, I could grasp physically. Um, and it's, there's a lot of wisdom there, man. Like I really enjoyed listening to it. I'm gonna think about reading more about it. And it was it was an awakening. It was something that happened after lockdown. I wouldn't consider it like three months ago. But now I'm like super interested in like some of these Eastern philosophies and things that I think that I would benefit a lot from in order to you know achieve a peace of mind that I've never achieved before. So it's just all been good, man. Like I actually look at the coronavirus. I mean, respectfully to the the, the victims and you know, the families who have lost, you know, loved ones. You know, very respectfully to them. But if, you know, leaving that aside, it's it. You know, speaking for myself, it's it's been a good thing. Other than the financial hit that I'm happy about, it's been it's been good. Yeah, it's interesting. There's so many layers to what you just said, and I'll start with with. The social distancing and this is again we we could devote this whole podcast to what is positive and the peace of mind and what is essential and what matters and and as you were saying learning new skills but i like sort of the balance like in for this podcast or this conversation where we're like god what's awesome right what are the awesome pros and then what are the cons because this is a can of worms that we're dealing with. I mean, if you think of it on the social distancing level, it's like, okay, let's play. Cause you know, guys like you and I, you always say this with the fight sports, you know, you got some people they're they're not very good at, at jujitsu and they're playing checkers, right? They're playing one move ahead, right? They're playing one move. They're thinking one or two moves. ahead. Then you have somebody else who's playing chess. Then you have somebody else who's playing speed chess. Then you have somebody else who's playing 20, 30, 50 moves downstream and they're playing grandmaster speed chess right like they're like bam 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 their brains is supercomputer people like you and mikey musumeci and, and others it's like wow they're they're just way ahead right and so when you start getting into the domino effects and you start thinking okay where could this thing go and you have to think that this is a this could be a game changer for mark for a lot of businesses us in particular, because Robert, it's such an intimate art. It's such a, it's, it's the most hands-on, it's more hands-on than football. I mean, you don't get more hands-on, more of an intimate, and you and I don't mean that in a romantic way, you don't get more intimate than what we do, where we're sweating, where we're, we're hanging on each other's backs. We are, we are glued to each other, right? It's the opposite of social distancing. It is. The other than romantic love between two people, it is it is it is near the top of the intimacy in a sport level. It doesn't get more intimate yeah. than that. And it doesn't get more exchanging where 
This guy has sweat on him. He has whatever. We all at some point, no matter, we could all shower. We could scrub those mats. There is bacteria everywhere. There are viruses. Everywhere. There are viruses in the ocean. You, you can't go into an ocean without, you'd have more, more viruses in a, you know, in a, in a 20 by 20 stretch of any clean ocean than you're going to have, you know, wherever. And, we, and we're still going to go in the ocean, right? So you can't create this pristine, super sterile environment, no matter how clean, right? So it is inevitable that we are SWAT, we are exposed to pathogens, bacteria, viruses, each other's sweat, etc. And so when you look at where this could go and you think, well, okay, number one, they could start, man they could mandate that you want to run a business like that, you have to have this vaccine, right? And everybody who trains us have this vaccine. Now, let's imagine if well, you have to have two of those vaccines apart, whatever. Now let's imagine if in a couple years, it's something else, right? So now you start saying, well, to run your business, you need one, two, three, however, this keeps going, vaccines. Your students need those. They have a record. If they're out, then you, know, then you have to keep logs of who's out and who was exposed to who. And now you're telling the state, the state comes in and says, well, we're keeping track of who had it and now who's exposed to who and they can't come to the gym for two weeks, whatever. It's a mess. And then let's imagine if they said, listen, Rob, you can't have 10 or more. You can have you can have them, but you can't have 10 or more. So you've got classes at Robert Drysdale's and so many gyms, Henzo Gracie's, so many of the great gyms around the world. And you've got 40, 50, sometimes much larger classes than that. Or you've got seminars where you've got, you know, however many people, right? You can have 100 people in a seminar. Let's imagine if they say, I mean, what does that do to your business model? You start saying, well, you can only have 10, you know, or, or let's imagine, hey, Robert Drysdale or Frank Forza, you have, you, you tested positive for COVID-19, you're asymptomatic, you're fine, but you can't teach kids because you're asymptomatic and we don't know what that means. You get everybody else sick. And, you, and you're always asymptomatic, just like people who have herpes, herpes simplex 1 or HPV. If you look deep in the blood, they always have that still in their blood, right? So if you start testing for that, you say, you can't coach blank because you're asymptomatic COVID-19. Even if you've had the virus, but you're, we don't, you know, you, you have it in you and the, virus, the vaccine's not going to make it go away. It's a can of worms, right? It's a can of worms. No, I, I, it is, man. Like, and I even felt like worst case scenario, I have to change professions. What am I going to do? Like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I know what I would like to do. Can I make money from it? Probably not. So it makes you rethink a lot of things. I'm not that pessimistic anymore. Now I'm looking and I'm going, I think it's going to pass. And I did worry for a second there was going to be a cultural pull on, uh, on BJJ because of social distancing. Like, there was that concern. And, now I think that everyone's kind of over it. I don't think people are that scared by the death rates anymore. Like, I, I'm not convinced there is, it's as dangerous as people are making it sound. Like a virus mutation would make it more dangerous. But as in right now, I don't think that that tolls are through the roof compared to other diseases. Like you could compare them. They're not. It's, it's, I mean, it's a flu. Like it's a really bad. It's, it's, it's dangerous, of course, but it's not. For a second there, like I was thinking, it was a bubonic plague, and if I left the house, I could have died. Like there was a, there was a panic out there that was not warranted, in my opinion. You know, I think that it was it was dangerous, something we had to respect. But you know, we're verging on a depression as well, so we have to balance these things out. You know, like a depression or a great depression would have far more severe consequences to the well-being of people than the coronavirus. Yeah, but Robert, but Robert, this is the thing. And, and 
you and I, what you just articulated, a lot of smart people, healthy people agree with you, thinking people, people who are well-read, people who put politics aside and just want to dig in and be unbiased. There are a lot of smart, deep-thinking people who are apolitical who agree with you. However, is that the norm? And is that what the powers that be, a lot of people driving the train, making the decisions, right? Is that what they're going to, you know, is, is that where they want to be? Do they want to be that voice of reason to put it in that perspective? I think that that's a pretty good perspective. But the fear, I guess, is, well, gosh, are the decision makers, because they're running this train. It's like, wow, it's, it's just they're still running it and it's still full of a lot of hype and hysteria that I would say the numbers don't, I would say the numbers right now don't really justify the level of hype and hysteria where we are. Yeah, um, that's kind of how I feel. Uh, one thing I do, like, I've been noticing this for, for quite some time. You know me, like, I've always been, I always call myself, like, somewhat of a radical of democracy, right? Like, I mm -hmm. radically believe that democracy is the best solution to all of our problems. Like, the, the wisdom of the masses, like, I strongly believe that on average, we would, you know, the world would be a better place if everyone had a voice. And I've been questioning that a lot with the internet because the internet has created that platform. You know, public opinion has never been so um, you, it's never been so heard. You know, before you had to, for you to have your voice heard 50 years ago, you had to be hired by a newspaper, you know, and write an article, and then you would have a voice. Now everyone has that voice. You know, which is in one way very positive. On the other hand, you know, it makes everyone an expert now. Like everyone's a Wikipedia expert. Like people truly believe they don't have to study because they can just Google the information and they're going to find it and that's good enough. And I'm like, that's not why you get educated. You get educated to interpret information, not to memorize it. Yeah, Google is great for pulling up information, but can you critically read it? That's the question. And I feel that people are overly confident about, you know, what they know. And I say people, everyone, I'm not pointing to bankers, I'm yeah. myself, so, You know, and they're overly confident about their understanding of the world. And it's, you know, it's based off of what Google gives you. Google is very selective about information. We know that. They're very selective about what kind of information is presented to you. That it's not, uh, you know, it's not done. What was being presented on the first page is not always unbiased. And you get in this 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 public opinion that is shaped in policy. So everything, everyone from judges to politicians to celebrities to news outlets, they cater to the audience. If the audience wants to laugh, they go left. They want right, they go right. But they're not catering to what is reasonable, what is right, or what the experts say in some cases. So you take in jujitsu. Like if you if you run a jujitsu website, right, and you go based off of algorithms. You're not going off what's just or what's fair or like this person won more tournaments. They don't go by that. They go by this person gets more clicks because they're loud, they're good looking, they're outspoken, whatever the case. And that right there determines how much that person will be heard on the uh, on that news outlet. Does that make sense? So you, you see that, all, that, that, that the factor of public opinion, it, it's always been that way. The internet just exacerbates it. And we're measuring that with, with algorithms now. So the algorithm has been single-handedly writing history. Like history is not being written by, by you know, intelligent, well-read, critically, you know, critically thinking men or women. It's being written by algorithms. You know, if people are clicking on it, that's what's going to go to the front of the page. That's what's going to be seen. That's what shapes public opinion. So politicians, no matter how well equipped of information they are by experts, 
they are more likely to listen to what the public says than what the experts are saying. And this goes for everything. So it's a scary world that we're creating. It's a world that's, you know, being controlled by algorithms that is, you know, is being uh, fed by public opinion, which is very rarely well-informed and critical. You know, so it's, it's, the whole thing is strange, man. Like, you get the hype, you know, and then the news people, they see people click on it, so they hype it more, and then people click on it more. So the newspaper ad, it clicks, uh, it adds more, you know, weight to those uh, the things that people clicked on. And it's just like this snowball effect, and it creates all these panics that you don't even know what's happening anymore. You know, and it's hard to trust your politicians because you don't know if they're listening to the experts. We're always in my morning. You know, or if you're listening to, if they're listening to public opinion. So the internet is in a way has created a, a, a world that is less informed. I never thought I'd say that, but I think that we've never been less informed. You know, this is, it's interesting because I remember being back at the University of Maryland studying philosophy classes and they were talking about Plato and Socrates and talking about the expert versus the masses, right? Like, okay, who gets to make these decisions? Should we rely on the experts who just study that for a living? They should make the decisions or should it be more democratic? Classical argument, right? The expert making the decisions, the, the, the tiny few, the elite wise few versus the masses. Classical uh, uh, discussion. And when I look at it now, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating point you bring at, bring up. And it's to me, it's flawed on both levels because you have experts that are tied to political biases. They are well-funded by certain sources, right? Some of them, some of them are in fact cronies. And so you have, you have the, a lot of potential for corruption there where very powerful people can have the experts in their pocket. And then on the other hand, you have masses who just a lot of times have dug in for their tribe or their political affiliation and they're, they've got their blinders on, right? It's like bang, 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 bang. If it's not Republican, if it's not Democrat, you're a bad person, you're a terrible person. It's almost like, I mean, this is what's crazy, Rob. What's crazy is in some, I mean, I don't think we're on the verge of civil war, right? I do not, I'm not pounding that drum. I do not think that. But that has crossed my mind glancingly, right? Glancingly, I'm like, these conditions, when you see the division, how people just dehumanize another side and just write them off and unfriend somebody because you see some people, like their whole Facebook page, so many people, is devoted toward this liberal agenda or this Republican agenda. And it's so That's tribal. Crazy to me, man. It's so tribal. It's very, yeah. yeah, it's very tribal. It's very irrational, too, because it's not, like, first of all, like politics is far more complex than a Disney cartoon. Sometimes when I hear these political debates, I feel like I'm in a Disney cartoon. You know, the, the, there's the there's the good and there's evil. Good is always me and my side, obviously, right? Like, I'm always mm -hmm. good. Hey, Hitler thought the same thing. Hitler and Genghis Khan thought they were great human beings. And, you know, the other side is always... Stalin, too. Stalin, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, that's the Sartre's work. Like, hell is always the other, you know? Like, that's... Yeah. The other person disagrees with you, always the bad guy. And it's almost like this cartoonish interpretation of the world, you know, and it's so immature. And I'm listening, and I'm going, people, like, this has, like, many more layers to this. This is not just good and bad, good versus evil. It's not so simple. What's, what's insane to me is, like, the world has become so polarized in terms of politics that people can't conceive the world outside of that framework. Like, if it's not a liberal, the, the, the Republican issue, they can't, like, they can't 
digest information. Like, they have to frame it somehow. Even a pandemic like the coronavirus, which is a world issue. Totally politicized. Totally politicized. Capitalism and communism. I'm like, how is this happening? Because the, 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 the debate has been so ingrained in the public psyche is that we have to frame everything in the only way they understand framing the world. Like, it, clearly, it's a communist plot coming out of China. Someone sent a documentary the other day. And it was about a Chinese communist plot trying to take over the world, and they've taken over the World Health Organization, and this is government's going to control our lives, and we need to fight for our freedoms. Go get your guns. And I'm like, people, <laughs> viruses have been around forever. <laughs> the Chinese are suffering from this one just as, from this thing as much as we, we are. Like, it's it's insanity, I feel like you're dealing with, but you're dealing with mass hysteria. Like, and that's... That's exactly what the scary aspect of mass psychology is that the herd just, they, man, they get running, man. You don't want to stand in front of them. You don't want to be the one trying to tell them to slow down because now they're running. And if you stay in their way, if you don't run with them, you're going to get trampled over. So it, I think that is a side effect of very poor educational system in, 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 in the world, really. I think that we're all suffering from this. Like, but don't you think that, and you're a guy, you're, you're even better versed on history than I am. I mean, I, when I read, I read, you know, more in the spiritual vein and, and nutritional vein and, and other things. And, and you are very, um, you know, you've spent a lot of time reading historical books. And, and I think that in some way, I mean, this is a pro and a con to our time is that you get a better perspective on like how did this dictator, how did this leader get all these people to buy in? Like you can totally, you can put pieces together better now where you're like, wow, I never thought I'd see the day where so many people would get behind this. It looks so transparent. It looks so, it looks like such a bad idea. How are so many people buying in? It just looks like it's like so blatantly corrupt or flawed. But now you can see you get you get a perspective where, oh, my gosh, how could you have a civil war? Well, we're not on the cusp of civil war, but now you get an idea of where, gosh, you can see so much division and you can see the infighting and you can see where two sides grow and grow and grow and get tribal and hate each other. And you can start to see, Robert, the pieces and you go back in history and you say, wow, history repeats itself. Like there are a lot of inflammatory conditions now that mirror very inflammatory conditions throughout history. Yeah. And there's a lot of manipulation now that mirrors the, 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 the mass manipulations before to say, even Robert, now without being too political and without being specific, but we know, I mean, this is pretty safe for me to say as a journalist, we know that when one country wants to go to war with another, they find their reasons, right? They have different reasons that they want to go, and they, they find those reasons. And there have been many occasions where the reasons, the pretext for going to war is not the main reason, right? And you, you, you find the reasons so that, so that your population is okay with that, your population is outraged. And so what's interesting is, in here in, Amer in the United States, we've spent a lot of time where it was always somewhere else, right? It was like we were going to go to war somewhere else. The impact was felt somewhere else, right? Now with this, the impact has come full brunt. I mean, we lead the world in COVID-19 cases, right? We've, we've, we've got, you know, our economy, which was presumed to be the best running economy. It was going bonkers for the first couple of years of the Trump administration and that economy has taken a hit. Some people made a lot are going to make a lot of money in that. Most people are going to lose, but 
when you think of it, you're like, wow, it, it's interesting. This is, a, this is a very unique situation where for the first time in a lot of people's life, the full brunt of something has come on us. It's not some faraway land where they're uprooted or they're disrupted or there's bombs there and they're getting the worst of it. And we're just thinking, we're sitting back thinking, well, they're a threat to us. They were a threat to our interests. You know, we're justified, right? And now here we are on the receiving end, like getting the brunt of something, right? And it's like, now we're forced to be like, okay, what's going on? Is this justified? It's, just, it's interesting. It's just an interesting time where you can, you look at the pieces differently and you look at history, you get a, you almost get a better front row seat to history and how could this have happened? How could this have happened? Because we always think, Robert, and I want you to speak to this. We always think, I think this is a mistake a lot of us make, we always think, well, that can't happen in my lifetime at this point of history. That can't happen now. We make the mistake, and I'll bet you people 100, 200, 500 years ago thought, we're better than that, we're smarter than that. That can't happen no. here. It's, 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 it's always happened and always will because the problem is the same. is lack of thinking. That's what it comes down to. It's just thinking takes effort. I get people... It's just easy to listen to your local politician or your favorite news anchor. Oh, I like this news anchor because he said that one thing that was true. So therefore, all these other topics that I don't really understand must also be true because he was right about that one thing. You know, and and I think that's why a lot of people look at politics. Like they look at the guy and like, oh, I like he smiles, he's good looking. You know, he said that one thing that you know resonated with me, and I agree with that. So everything else goes. You know, everything's accepted. And the digestion, and, you know, there's no more digestion of information. It's just like absorption. You know, you just take it. You don't really look at it and go, okay, what a second here. And, you know, we all suffer from this. You know, like it's, it's an enormous effort to, you know, think and digest every piece of information that is thrown in your way. Because especially in the age of the Internet where you're just bombarded with information all day, you don't even know what to believe anymore. And this, like, this is why education has never been more important because education, its purpose is to teach you how to interpret information, not just accept it. You know, but you're right in that, you know, history is this discipline. Where we, we look at history something in the past, the present, and the future are clearly different. We, you know, we rarely see ourselves as part of a historical process. You know, we, we just, we think of like, oh, yeah, that we're that thing called World War II. That's not going to happen again. You know, like that was just them. They were stupid then. And we forget that Germany was, you know, the, the, the pinnacle of Western culture at the time. Germans were some of the most educated people in the world. They were not dumbass. They were not uneducated. They were not poor. It was a highly developed industrial society before the, you know, the, 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 the crash and, you know, and everything that led to World War II. But these were sophisticated people. And look at what, look at what happened. These are, so my point is, like, even people who are well-educated and sophisticated could fall to, you know, to political rhetoric and, you know, leading a madman into power. Like, imagine, you know, imagine the rest of the world. I feel like it's even less educated than the average German. So it's it's just a matter of like historical conditions aligning for something like this to happen. And like I don't want to sound apocalyptic. Like I don't want to want something like this to happen. But you know you do see people very uh, very accepting of things that happen around them, and you know very believing in everything that gets thrown their way. Like everyone produces a documentary now. Everyone you know everyone's got a blog. Everyone has a YouTube channel, and like everything is gospel truth now. Like and Wikipedia is a source of information. I said, when is Wikipedia a source for anything? You know, like I, it's, it's hard to, you know, you look at everything and yes, you do understand the past better and you do understand how, you know, how things that as horrific as the Holocaust could happen because you see mass hysteria.
and right now I think I mean I don't think we've ever been this poor. I, I'm not in my my lifetime. What's interesting, you you've read a lot of books. Which book do you think speaks most closely to this situation? I don't know. Like you can pick like listen. You, let's say you know going back to like the World War II example. Like have you, have you ever read Mein Kampf, Hitler's autobiography? I have not, and is that book okay. outlawed? Is that is that outlawed yeah, in some places? I mean, is that is that is it, that? It's outlawed in many places. I actually, I, I don't have a copy for it. I have yeah. to And you can understand, like he doesn't sound like a madman. He sounds like he's reasonable. He sounds like a reasonable man who's in love with his people, and he wants what's best for his nation. He's a patriot, and he hates Marxism, and he thinks that the Jews are screwing the German economy, and so on and so forth. And he he sees himself as a martyr and a war hero, and. You know, we're great people, and we have this sort of like this, they, you know, manifest destiny sort of mentality. And you can, and it's not, it's not, he's not, he doesn't paint himself the way history books do. You know, so you have to read in between the lines to see the madman, right? But if you just read him and you didn't tell people who he was, I think a lot of people would read by Catholic and go, yeah, this guy sounds like he's perfectly reasonable. You know, so it's any, by anything you read, you have to read it with a critical eye, which is why I don't like Steve. Like I've always been against it. Like I, I was forced to speed read in, in college, and you know during my master's program, like I hated it. It made no sense to me. Like okay, I'm supposed to read this in like eight hours. Okay, that's great. I'm not going to understand a thing. Oh, you're supposed to understand what the book is about. Okay, I understand what the book is about, but I can't think of it critically because there's no time to do it. You know, I like to read a paragraph and I'll reread it and I'll think about it and I'll zone out and I'll think about it. Like you read something and you want to look for reasons to disagree with the book. You shouldn't be looking for reasons to agree with it. That's too easy. You got to look for reasons to disagree with it, and and when you start doing that, you start spotting flaws in the in, in, in the arguments of the author. You can start seeing the bias. You can start seeing that there's an agenda there, or sometimes you see someone who's very genuine and honest. You know, um, I always you know, but to answer your question, I think a classic is 1984. Um, even though I think he's I George, think George, George Orwell. Years, but, George Orwell on his on his deathbed, by the way, in a in a in a uh, in a faraway country cottage, uh, writing that book and gets it done and then dies. It's very poetic, but it's a, yeah, it's an incredible book. And, and the reason why Orwell is important is not because he's a good writer. Orwell is not a good writer. You can read like Animal Farm 1984. He's not a good writer. Orwell is important because he's able to spot the fallacies of power and concentration of power. And many people, many people interpret 1984 as a critique of the Soviet Union, which is a misreading of things. Like you you got to remember George Orwell was, was, a, uh, was a guerrilla during the Spanish Civil War for a Trotskyist uh, 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 front. You know, he was, you know, he was a communist for his, most of his life. He was critical of the Soviet Union. But you know, he himself was, you know, he, he, he adhered to Marxist ideology. So when he's writing 1984, he is not, he is not thinking of the Soviet Union. He is thinking about governments and power in general and how, you know, you have to create the gold scene. You have to create the bad guy to continue to keep people scared because if there's no bad guy out there, oh, well, how do you justify your concentration of wealth and power? You know, so he's able to see politics in the world for what it was. Um, I think it's a critique of, of concentration of power in general. I wouldn't say just government. I think today, personally, I think that Google has more power than the U.S. government. You know, and we don't see it that way, but I think that, you know, Big corporations like Google and Apple, I think they are the next empires. I think that the, the history of nations being in empires is, is ending, and we're watching the rise of a whole new form of imperialism, which
which is international and, and I mean far more powerful than than anything we've ever seen in the world because they're able to control information. We're living in the age of information. Guess who controls it? Right, mass data. Who's doing that? Who's controlling information? It's not Uncle Sam anymore. Yeah. I think Uncle Sam is becoming like a a, a, a smaller player on this, this this whole equation. But like Orwell is brilliant because Orwell speaks well beyond government. Like he, if you, if you want, if you, when you read him, you can see he's talking about any kind of power, including something like Google. Right, so it's well beyond anything that you know. I think most people misinterpret it because they always interpret it as a critique of you know concentration of government power and communism. And it's it's. I think I think people underestimate Orwell's mind and his vision of politics and power. Right. So I I mean that's a that's a classic one to me, but I don't think it's particularly well written to be honest. But it's a fun read, and, and I think he, he he understands and describes the world in very intelligent terms. Yeah, I think that when I see um, some of the people in the media, public health experts, right, and I look at them and they don't look remotely healthy. And I think of uh, George Orwell and I think, well, this is very Orwellian, right? Like these are public health experts. They look very grim. They don't look healthy. And as one of my buddies was saying, well, they're under a lot of stress, whatever. And I'm like, no, these just don't look, they don't look like they were healthy before the crisis. Like they just don't look like they know very much about healthy living. But, but, but this is the... The other thing, when you talk about democracy, this is something that I think about with this. Um, democracy presumes a well-informed, free thinking, not what do I think, but how do I think, right? Critical thinking, honest, uh, transparent. It, it assumes a lot of things. It assumes that people are, are even healthy, right? That they're even, because if yeah. people are not healthy in their, especially nowadays, if people are not healthy and they've got all, they're chronically sick and they're this, I mean, they're just, it's just really hard to um, to really like it's particularly with this virus. So let's say fear, 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 fear. Well, if you're not a healthy person, right? If a lot of people aren't healthy, which m most Americans are not, well, then it's going to be easy to scare most Americans, right? Because so many people are not healthy. They don't have. They're, they're not eating healthy. They're not living healthy. We have we hand out prescription opioids like they're candy. We hand out. We are. 4% of the world's population, roughly, we are roughly 45% of all of its prescription drug sales. So when you have a population that's that vulnerable, particularly for this, a virus, it is so easy to scare the bejesus out of them. And then they say, oh, whatever you want, whatever you do, whatever you have to do to keep us safe. On the other hand, if you have a stronger population that are healthy, that are free thinking, that are really... Um, you know, what we would call education. And when, when Robert and I, and I think I'm speaking for you here too, Robert, when we're using education, we don't mean necessarily formal education, college degree, PhD. We mean a population that is, you know, reading far and wide, is critical thinking, is challenging, okay, here, here's the way this story was presented. What are the biases? What questions could should have been asked but weren't asked? We're talking about we're talking about a knowledge of history and, and understanding that history repeats itself. We're talking about a lot of things when we say an educated person, a person who's coming from a place of good intentions, who's a pretty avid reader, um, and and that's what we mean. We don't mean you went to college, therefore you're. We just need a nation of college. I, I personally don't think that just having a nation of college educated people. Um, so no, no, I think about revamping the educational system. Like we don't, it's not, and I, maybe it's always been this way, you know. But I was living in times where I think it's never been more undervalued. I literally, I see videos of people telling 
like everyone just started like yeah I don't need to learn this stuff I can just Google because it's lazy right like it's it's lazy and it's simple it means that oh see you spent your whole life reading books you just wasted your time I got an iPhone I'm good to go and I'm like yeah, this is exactly the kind of mindset that we should be fighting you know but you know you're right man there's it's um it's like I think we're living in a very fast world you know there's this book I just reread a while ago it's called Liquid Times by um, um, a Polish anthropologist called Bauman. And, you know, he defines the world as a world that is, doesn't have shape anymore. That's why it's liquid. It's a world that's free of any shape because things change so quickly. You don't know what the future holds. You don't know, like, you know, 50 years ago, you know, you wanted to get a good job. You wanted to save money for your kid to go to college. You know, you wanted to buy a house. And, you know, if you did well, maybe you buy a little... You have a vacation at the end of the year. Like, the world was more, you had a sense of what would work in life. You understand? Like, life was stable in a lot of ways. And before that, even more so, there was stability, right? Perhaps there's more freedom today, but there's also a lot more instability. So, I don't know what the world's going to be like tomorrow. The dollar going to collapse? Is Bitcoin going to take over? Is Google going to collapse? Is Facebook going to be the next great? It's a very unstable world. And it's it's very difficult to to get your grasp on where where we're going because things are changing so rapidly, like we've never lived so much rapid change in such a short period of time. Just think about how much the world has changed since nine eleven, not even twenty years, and just think about how much the world has changed. You know, so you know, and, and, and you, when you look at this from a historical perspective. I think that future historians are going to look at this and go, you guys will live in absolute madness, assuming we make it to the point where future historians can actually study us. Uh, but it's, it, it is a world of more than Well, shit. I think, yeah. I think, and I don't mean to be Machiavellian here, because I'm very optimistic still about a lot of things, and I'm sure you are too. But on a Machiavellian level, I would say it feels to me like it's probably no, it, it's it's as easy to manipulate the masses now, far and wide, as it's ever been. Because again, you can you can control the data, you know the algorithms, you have the feedback. People are all glued to their devices. You, you know the the news the news um, you know the major news is owned by a handful of of super uber rich people. It's very easy now to manipulate public opinion. I mean, it's it's it, it's, it's never it, it, it's never been easier in my lifetime. It's never been easier. Yeah. Um, and, and you get like, a, um, and, and people, because they abide to uh, ideologies, right, or their political parties. So like, I'm a Fox News guy, news guy so everything that CNN, CNN says, or MSNBC, yeah, you or see through that prism. They see through that prism. be a lie. And vice versa, right? Like, you know, like a, a Democrat is going to look at Fox News and goes, well, clearly they never write about anything. No. And once you start seeing the world like that, like to me, that's scary. Because that's when it means you're not thinking for yourself anymore. You're allowing your favorite channel, whatever that is, to the thinking for you. And that, to me, is a very scary thought. Well, what, what I've been thinking a lot about lately, because we call this branch of philosophy epistemology, which is, and it's a very important branch, probably 99.99% of people have never heard the word, but the word is epistemology. And epistemology is how do I know, right? How do, I, how do you actually know that, Frank, right? And so you go, you peel off all these layers and as you were saying, I mean, you know, when you're smart, you, 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 you can't know something for like, you know, for instance, you and I, we don't know 100% if OJ did it. We don't. We're, we cannot sit here and nobody in that court 
knew 100%, right? So you're, when you say, well, how do you know, right? You just, you sort of, maybe you can arrive at, based on the best information available at the time, you can arrive at a certain percentage. Hey, I'm, uh, based on this, I'm 98% sure, you know, whatever, right? So, so w when, we talk, when, when we talk about the epistemology, the one thing that I always think of, you know, we think of, okay, what are your values? How do you determine? And one thing I always think of is, well, in general, truth is transparent or it should be transparent. So when I don't see transparency, I don't care what study, what data, when I don't see transparency, right? When I just see these, you know, there's a prepared statement, questions that should be asked, weren't asked, key questions, right? I remember I used to sit in on police shootings and I, there were so, I met so many good cops, uh, you know, when I was a journalist and, and even police chiefs. I met a lot of fantastic law enforcers, and, but there were shootings that were very questionable and looked like bad shootings, right? You come across those too. You sit in on those. Those are called coroner's inquests where they will investigate. And I would sit in on, I remember sitting in on some coroner's inquests and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, wow, this is a key question and it should be raised during this hearing to determine if this is a bad shooting. Well, guess what? It was never raised. And that happens multiple times. And that happens in so many big cases. And I'm thinking, wait, this is a pivotal question and it's not asked, right? And it's not asked. A lot of times, Robert, I'm saying this, it's not asked intentionally. It's like it's kept, you know, there, there's somebody else who's guiding the process and saying, let's not ask that one. That's a can of worms. So yeah. I've always operated on the assumption from my epistle, when I go about how do I know, I take a look and I'll say, be like if you and I were sitting down and, you know, we were like, Frank, what's going on here? And you'd be like, the more transparent I am, the more faith you would probably have in everything, right? You're going to have more, oh, he's being transparent. The more that I was closed or tight-lipped or whatever, even though it'd be like, wow, everything he said, but if you felt like he's being evasive, he's this, or, you know, then you come away, you're like, well, wait, everything he said kind of makes sense, but he didn't, he didn't, he didn't answer key questions. He didn't answer that one. He, he was tight-lipped. He was formal. He was evasive, right? It's, it's, there's a lot to be said for transparency. And so I put a lot into, when I look at things too, I'll say, what questions should have been asked? That's a big one for me when I read news accounts. Um, you know, the anonymous sources, when I read certain things, Washington Post, New York Times, whatever, say, according to, you know, whatever. And I'll just think, well, I'll, because I've worked as a journalist for so many years, I'll think, well, who could that have source have been? Or where would they come from? What would a source like that gain, right? And, and, you, and then you'll consider, like you said, you'll consider the biases of the, the general biases of the organization, right? You'll, you'll consider the tone of the words. You can look at, when you start looking at uh, sizing up the writer, analyzing them, what are their word choices? Are they using biased word choices, right? Where they're overwhelmingly, you can see that a lot. Where you're like, wow, these word choices. Like, I'll read stuff on vaccination. And I know, you know, I am not anti-vaccination. I am pro-choice vaccination. But I will read some things. All of the stories on vaccination, 99% in the mainstream, are so one-sided, you would not know that there's $4 billion in payouts to victims and they're pennies on the dollar. You would not know that in 1986, uh, the, the, the politicians essentially banned your ability to sue Big Pharma for any damages. You have to go through this long process, bureaucratic process. The most you can get is 250 grand if you make it to the finish line when you're exhausted and you know there's no money there. Your lawyer's gonna take 40% of the money. So when you look at the process, when you read 99% of the stories, you would be like, oh my God, you know, you, you don't get any of the other side. You don't get the hundreds of thousands of parents that are out there saying X, Y, and Z and questioning. You don't get that. And I'm not saying 
Again, I am. if people want to get vaccinated until the cows come home, I think that's fine. But you do not get any sense of the other side. You can't. You cannot read any mainstream account. It is hook, line, sinker that, hey, vaccines never damage for the greater good, whatever. End of story, right? All of these vaccines are good. And so when you look at that and you'd say, wow, just as a thinking person, okay, but we paid $4 billion out, right? We did pay $4 billion out. And there are stories of people, they had the kid, 24-hour, my, my friend Paul is one. You know, he had his beautiful little daughter, three, two, three years old, and got the vaccine, comes back later to her crib, same day, she's blue, she's dead, right? And he's, he's yeah. getting ready, six years later, he's getting ready this year to have his day in court, and the most he can get is 250 grand. And the guy is, you know, drinking heavily, and, he, you know, and, he's, and he's got two other kids, and he's trying to keep it together. But you don't hear those stories, is my point, right? So, so I'm using that as one example, but this is, this is the case in so many things where you're not given a full picture of a broader picture of things that go on. Like even for instance, Bill Gates, right? I'm not going to speak personally against Bill Gates, but nobody, you don't see in any mainstream account like potential conflicts of interest, his, his, his relationships with vaccines, patents that are held, what the, Bill, the, the William and you know, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation does with some of their money. Why is he on TV where his companies can stand to benefit, his close friends can stand to benefit from things he's saying on there? You don't, you don't get any of that narrative, right? And so a thinking person would at least say, can you tell me more so that I can make an informed decision? Like what's, you know, what conflicts of interest, what, you know, what businesses, what are the relationships here? Uh, what are the relationships between, say, uh, you know, certain mega millionaires or mega billionaires and the, and the press, right? In the press themselves, in the case where multiple press organizations are owned by billionaires, right? And, and so th th there's just been given a pass, like nobody questions why, why is Walmart and Home Depot and whatever still open? They're okay for social distancing, right? But, but nobody else, nobody else can, nobody else, no other yeah. place is safe. But Walmart, Walmart is safe for you to walk in there and, you know, and be six feet away from people. Um, and yeah, it's the, um, yeah, the whole thing is, the, the problem with contemporary politics is that it's, it's not, it's, it's, I mean, it pays attention to public opinion is a voice. There certainly is that. But there's this other thing called lobbying, you know, and the voice of the people is not proportioned out of politics. You know, they go back to democracy, you know, to quote Churchill, it's the worst system of government except for all the others. <laughs> and it's true, and it really is the worst system of government, but it's just, it's still better than everything else we've ever come up with, you know. But I think that the real problem is that, like, they public opinion is very uneducated, you know, and then the experts are been bought out. Like, it's hard, you don't know who to trust. I think that there are good doctors out there that, you know, legitimately care. I think it's the vast majority. But, you know, again, again, you got scientists that are bought by big pharma, and then you get uh, the, the climatologist who's like, nope, I'm going to make way more money if I say climate change is a myth. You know, so they, 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 they pick their affiliation according to their own interests, not to their their loyalty and, and allegiance to science and, and, and the truth. You know, so there's a lot of that. You get people influencing politics in, in Washington, and they shouldn't, you know, they, they, they should have, you know, as much say as me or you, but they don't because they have a lot of money behind them. So in a way, you know, it's, it's, look, we don't have a better, uh, we don't have anything better. You know, I, I've never seen anything better, 
but it's been very corrupted by the politics, very corrupted by big money. And, you know, they, you know, they're the ones pulling the string. It's not, a, I don't think it's a conspiracy. I don't think there's any group of you men in a dark room in a dungeon somewhere planning to conquer the world. And you, it's just money. It comes down to that. Like money talks. Like people who have money want to make more and they'll pull strings. And it's not a conspiracy. It's obvious. Like they, they, they're pretty open about it. And it's out there. You don't have to be a genius to figure this out. Like, you know, people with money and with power, they want to make more money and have more power. It goes without saying. So you've been, you've traveled far and wide, probably dozens of countries, and we're sitting here talking about sort of the state of the world, trying to make sense of it. What countries have you been impressed with where you think, wow, they're, they're handling it, and I'm not talking about this situation, but before this, wow, they're doing a pretty good job there. Where, where have you been impressed? No, I saw something a while ago, and I, yeah, I actually seen it twice. I like. I keep telling myself I'm going to study it more because it's um, to me it's so fascinating. But the country of Bhutan, it's like a little tiny little country in, in Asia. Um, if I'm not mistaken, it borders Nepal. But it basically, you know, it's a Buddhist country. Like its Buddhism is, you know, the the, the overwhelming majority of the population adheres to um, to Buddhism, and they decided that they were going to measure their wealth not based on how much money they had, not, you know, gross domestic products. It was going to be, we are going to measure happiness. So you can measure happiness by, you know, you look at suicide levels, depression rates, stress levels, and you can, you know, you know, you can see how happy people are based off of these factors, right? And they decided they were going to measure their wealth based off of how happy their people were. So they would measure it, like, consistently, like, every year they had a, a goal to, to make it move up and make their people the people the happiest people in the world which I thought was very interesting I haven't really looked into it in detail but I think they're on the right track I think that is a more important currency than the one that everyone else is obsessed over not that I don't think money is important I like money like everyone else I'm not stupid but I think that they there's a lot of wisdom into what they're doing I think that as in terms of wisdom I think they have outdone the rest of the world there was a, this is going back probably 10 years, and I haven't kept up with it, and I've never been to Norway. I have been to Finland. Um, yeah, and pretty incredible. Yeah, but, but I had read from far away that, fin, that, that Norway, had, of course, Norway fares pretty well. If you look even now at quality of life and quality, you know, they, they rate, they still rate very high. And... Once upon a time, ten years or so ago, they had, they had interesting because they had they had were a socialist country, right? They had a very big safety net and a very big welfare state for their you know pretty much, to my understanding, you'd be you'd be middle class, right? You you, you know you're you're good, and yeah. you're not you're not gonna you're not gonna be homeless. You're not gonna be you know a crack addict you know somewhere. You, you, you're, you're going to be taken care of. You're going to at least have this solid standard of living. And yet, despite their socialism and their, their welfare state, they produced the most millionaires per capita. So they had seemed, yeah. from, from different readings, to, have, to bring sort of the best of both worlds. Because the conventional argument is, hey, if you have socialism or if you have communism, you can't have 
you you know it will disincentivize things right people will be disincentivized why should i why should i kill it why should i work extra why should i be innovative when um you know if i make a hundred grand the the state's going to take 50 percent of it and so it kills the incentive right unless you're a crony um so the theory goes unless you're a crony attached to the to the big government then you're you know there's not a lot of incentive for you so just go through the motions be middle class um but Norway, from thing from from what I had read, had thrown a monkey wrench in, right? Like, hey, we're you know, so that always intrigued me. I didn't get a chance to go there, but I thought, wow, Norway looks like the, you know, the quality of life, their people are happy. I think they, they rank them off like per capita. I think they're the second richest country in the world, behind the UAE. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and they're also like you know they they have incredible infrastructure. The people are highly educated. They seem very mature and happy and intelligent. And like there's, I never felt danger there. I always like to measure how dangerous a country is by how many cop cars I see. If I see a lot of cops, I, you know, I have an idea of how dangerous. It is. Like I have no idea. I just felt police in Norwegian. I don't think I saw a single cop while I was there. I'm sure they exist, but like I never felt the danger. When you go to Rio, like cops everywhere. You know. But um, yeah, I. You're right because we we don't have we we haven't had a truly capitalistic. I mean, it's it's we're not a truly we we have a huge corporate we have a huge corporate welfare uh, program that we've had has been alive and kicking for a long time.
Their healthcare system is very good. They're actually cheaper than our healthcare system. We spend more money on healthcare than they do. So I think it's possible to make social improvements. So the problem, and this is my criticism to the American side, and, and I love this country, and I wouldn't live anywhere else. Right? Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but it's because we've been so dominant for so long, it's we do not accept any criticism. You know, we've been so dominantly, uh, dominant like that, militarily, economically, politically, culturally. Everyone wants to live here, so our train of thought goes, well, clearly, we're the best at everything. And if we're the best at everything, how can we be wrong about anything? And I think we start making these associations where all, which aren't always exactly true. Like we, yes, we're very dominant in many fields, but it doesn't mean that our education system is great because we know it isn't, right? It doesn't mean our healthcare system is great because we know it isn't. But you can't mention change without people going, oh, you're a socialist. Oh, get out of here if you don't like it. Go live somewhere else, you know? So it's it's become so insular that it's it's almost like it's become shielded against any kind of criticism. You can't criticize, you know like how much you love it, and I think that criticism is a form of love. I've got way to find patriotism. It's criticizing your government, not agreeing with it. Agreeing with everything your government says and does is the definition of fascism. You know, you're a patriot by disagreeing with your government and wanting what's best for your, for your people. That's my definition, right? Some people disagree. Whatever the case, I think that the U.S. has become a country very devoid of self-criticism. Like, it's not allowed. It's the second you open your mouth to say anything that's remotely critical, well, I, I would amend that for me to say that, you know, devoid of criticism or sort of this, you know, we would call that an arrogance, meaning, you know, we're, we're above that, like we're, we're the kings, we're the queens. And so, but, but I would say devoid of criticism, unless it subscribes to a Republican or liberal narrative, those two narratives, you just have to pick a side, you got two choices, right? If you stay within one of those narratives, then you got you know you got power in numbers. You're protected. You, you you know you have a good healthy tribe. You don't you don't have to stick your neck out, right? It's it's a lot lonelier if you're a free thinking intellectual, right? And you're in this five or ten percent. Even if you have phenomenal solutions, right? You're like I mean you're on an island. And it's like you know you get you put it on social media. If you dare to put it on social media, you get your five or ten likes, and it's like you're not relevant unless you're buying in or propagating one of these two dominant narratives, right? It's like a Republican or it's a liberal narrative. And, and so, but you're, you're right. I mean, it is a good point about the, the devoid of, of criticism. I, this is interesting. So I was in Finland a couple years ago and I was there with your boy, Sean Rigo, and I was there with Bobby Razik and, 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 and a few others. You know both those guys very well. And, and same thing. I mean, I, it was so clean and so serene and you're right you didn't see any cop cars and people are so well behaved now what everybody will say to me and say to you is well listen frank there's 5.5 million people in finland it's easier to manage that population however many there are in norway yeah they have a lot less people canada's 33 36 million so because they're so much smaller in number yes they're better behaved yes they're better run but they're smaller and it's easier but if that's the case, though, Rob, right? So, okay, Canada, there's a lot of things. Same thing with Canada. I mean, you don't feel the sense. You can go far and wide in Canada. You are not going to feel like you would feel if you were to go to some major metropolitan cities at 12, 1 in the morning. I mean, you know, you're going to – you make one wrong turn down a wrong street to get yourself in a lot of trouble, right? Just wrong place, wrong time. You don't have that – 
But 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 wait. So let me finish. The, let me finish the thoughts up. So we don't say that about California, right? California is thirty-six million people, like one of the ten biggest. You know, it could be its own. It could be its own country, right? But California and and the way this run. I mean, people are you know a lot of people are leaving California. And they're moving to other places. They're moving to to to, to Austin and they're moving to, to to Boise and they're moving to Utah. But you know, they're they're within management, whatever. And a lot of people would say, well, you know, that's sort of there's a lot going on there and that's messy. So. I mean, if if that's true, the small, then you'd say, well, is is are we just a mess because we're thirty three hundred thirty million people, or is it as you you know maybe contribute say the, the devoid of criticism, you know, is it that we're late? We want to put a lot of money into corporate welfare, but we don't want to put it into education. Just I don't know. I mean, but but some of these five point five, you can't tell me that some of the things that work in Finland couldn't work here. I mean, I guess, I guess you'd say, well, could some of those things work here? Could there be buy-in? Uh, Some I, of the things in North. Sun Tzu would say that leading many and leading few is only a matter of organization. Right? And I think he'd be right. I think most big corporations would tell you the same. They go, or any military or anything, they go, yes, it's a matter of organization. Right? So I think that, I'm, I'm not sure the argument that there's only so many million people in Finland is a good one. I could see it. You know, there's some major cultural differences, too. You know? Which is always interesting to Scandinavian countries in the case of, like, you know, Norway and Sweden, they, you know, what thousand years ago they were like they were raiding the world. They were like the most violent people on the planet. You know, now like this is the most peaceful, which speaks volumes about how malleable human nature is, right? Like you go from being this fiercely violent people to being some of the biggest, most pacifist people on the planet. But um, I don't know. I think that we can learn a lot. From it's it's not that you know we we're not used to learning from the world we're used to teaching the world we give the world the iPhone right American not American business by the way like most of our technology is from the government a lot of people don't know that but like that's a very interesting that's, that's a whole separate discussion there but to me that's that's a, it's always missing the military people. industrial compound yeah no, well of course it was the military you know public funds the government yeah. video games government. video games are military it's, industrial it's, yeah. Right. yeah. Computer, the internet, the internet. By the exactly. yeah. So, um, but you know, I think that there's a lot of things that we could be learning from the world. We're used to teaching the world, right? Like the world looks up to us for so many things. Um, but we could, you know, there's a lot of things that the world learns from. Like we could be learning from from, from the rest of the world. Like I have a friend of mine from from Australia, super smart guy, and I think he just finished his second PhD at, at uh, Princeton. It might have been Yale. I don't know that. But he, uh, um, he goes like this. So he travels here a lot, right? He's a really smart guy, and he goes like this route. Like, the U.S. and the country have the best and the worst of everything. It has, like, the best technology, the, the, some of the greatest minds, the best universities, and also have, like, some of the dumbest shit you can have to think of. Like, it's true. Like, we, in some ways, we're very, very backwards. Like, you cannot even talk about, like, public hospitals. And it's going to be talking called the communism. Like, you guys realize the whole world has Right, we're an exception to the rule, and we spend more money than the rest of the world. But you can't even bring the conversation up without people getting angry. At you. I would, it's, I, like it's cheaper and more efficient. The whole yeah. world has it. Like we're behind them in that regard. Let's just stop. Like and just just look at the facts, people. It's cheaper and more efficient. Knock it off. We're not healthier than the rest of the world. We're not. Exactly. We have more money. Exactly. We might have better hospitals. We might have better technology. Exactly. But that does not mean we're healthier. 
I would say if I had to put my finger on two things, and you, you know, a lot of people pick on education. I actually wouldn't. Education is obviously, by and large, it's a mess, especially in a lot of our major uh, metropolitan school systems. But I would actually start, there are two things that stand out. And by the way, Robert and I, I mean, I'm proud to be an American. I've never lived anywhere else. I don't have citizenship anywhere else. I'm saying this as someone who loves their country, who wants, you know, who, who's thinking about solutions. This is the time where we're sort of, it feels like we're at a crossroads. And I'm just thinking of like, I'm sharing my viewpoints and saying, okay, if, if I look at, okay, what's been our Achilles heel? What's holding us back? What, what needs a, a radical transformation? And, and a couple of things jump out. Number one, it's, it's the double-edged sword. We are phenomenal. We are the, you know, I remember one of the, you know, a billionaire that I once met and went to dinner with, and he was like, you know, you got, you, if you're not big in America, you're, you're just not big anywhere. You know, it's like, if you, it's like, it's like the old saying, like, if you can make it and if you can make it there, right there being New York, if I can make it there, I make it anywhere. If you're serious about business and making money, you need to be in America. That's where, that's the cash cow, right? And for, for many, for many businesses. And so it's been, and even a person like me, when I look at America and you go back to Christopher Columbus coming here and supposedly the narrative is, and I know you probably know better, but, but that he discovered America, which is kind of preposterous that he discovered the United States had already been discovered. It had already been, it's like he, you know, the European settlement and discovery of this place. Um, but, but he, you know, one of the stories is uh, from some historians, I don't think it's the popular one, is that he went to Nicaragua and there was a place called America and it had, had all these, it had gold and it had whatever else and riches and I think when I see the word America, I think of Amer, which to me is related to the word Amor, and then Rica, which I think of as riches, right? And, and some would say it's close to that yeah. word. America, love of riches. And so when I've always thought of, of my own country, which I love, I think of like in the name, right? Just born in the name is like this love of riches. It's a very, very hyper-materialistic culture. And the unfortunate thing is when you are so, and that's why people are tripping over themselves. If you go around the world and you ask most people, right? I mean, you ask a lot of people. There, you know, there are a lot of people who say, look, I want to be in America. They will do whatever, however they have to get here. If you, get, if you ask them to pick a yeah, if you ask them to pick a country, they're going to pick that. Most people around the world, they're going to pick the United States. And, you, and whenever, you, whenever you go, like I... Right, exactly. So I went, you know, I went to China, Beijing, you're, you're very World War traveled. I mean, the weird thing was like, you know, you're thinking there's going to be a lot of tension. A lot of people there just, you go there and they admire you. It's like, you're this American, you have special powers, you're, and they're warm to you. And they're, and they're like, they, they're like, you know, so it's an interesting thing where there's like a love hate thing where politically there's tensions, but a lot of people do love and admire us. They look up to us. They wish. Here's what I got from, from, I've been, you know, I've been to. Russia, Chechnya, Dagestan, I've been to Cuba, I've been to places that, you know, in theory are very, in theory are very anti-American, right? Mm -hmm. They should be. And what I always get from them is never anything like that. It's, they, it, and, and in fact, it's always like, they don't like our government, but they have absolutely nothing against American people. They actually enjoy American culture. Like, they like a lot of, they like our movies, they like our music, they'll ask questions about, you know, what is life here like, but you mentioned Uncle Sam's foreign policy, and like, it's, you know, people, they, they kind of like look away, like, you don't, you know, they, they, they Uncle Sam's not very friendly to a lot of these people, is my point. But, you know, I think it's important to draw that distinction. You know, I don't people like, they, they think that American people and government are the same thing, and, you know, I, you know, obviously for them, just thinking, 
people, and I'm like, oh, what is the rationale behind Cuba? Oh, we don't like communism. China's our main part, business part. Like, what are we talking about? And the Chinese government is infinitely more repressive than the Cuban government. Let's not get off. That's nothing to do with going to stop it. Right? Like, it's just nothing. But surprisingly, like, they don't blame us. Like, they, they know that, you know, they don't like our government, but, like, they're very, very, very welcome towards them. It was never anything remotely negative, anything other than just respect and, and you know, I felt camaraderie and, like, they were really, really nice to me the whole time. So I, I think that there's, uh, you know, Americans feel that they're hated around the world. They're not. It's just that they don't like the world. Much of the world does not like our, our foreign policy, which is not mm-hmm. that it's not been good at the world. I mean, you know, we've had some, you know, good moments. We, yes, we played a role, uh, a role in World War II, but if you look at our history after that, like, we've been on the wrong side of history most of the time. You know, usually we don't talk about it. We don't like to admit it. You know, but uh, some of it is just, uh, it's so obvious. Like, I have a hard time saying I try to leave it all to it. Yeah, you, you, a, guy, a guy that you read a lot, you read a lot of Noam Chomsky, he talks a lot about, um, you know, he's got a laundry list of taking a look at our foreign policy and the ramifications. I, I want to, I, I do want to stay with... Love. And love, yeah. and frankly, just, just, just quickly, I think people, when, when you criticize, it comes across as, hey, it's not hate, it's love. No, no, no. no. you criticize something you love, that's real love. I agree. Just giving a pat on the back to people as a coach and right. as a parent, I know that I can only love my children if I give them hard lessons and I tell them when they're wrong. I can't love them by telling them when they're, they're right when they're wrong. It is it's the same thing as a coach. It's the same thing as a yes. A true patriot criticizes his country when it's wrong. Well, and that's what makes a patriot. And it's even not just going high, you know, yeah. high every time your government says go left or go right. That makes you a follower, not a patriot. Exactly. And and Ray, Ray Dalio, who's you know whatever a, a, a billionaire running those hedge funds, and he's got a book out that's done very well called Principles, and they have a. Uh, you know, they have a philosophy at his company, which was called radical transparency. It's very different than the vast majority, the way a lot of companies run. In that culture, you sit in the meeting and if you're, you could be low on the totem pole, but your job is to pick holes and tell them where their blind spots are. You could disagree with Ray Dalio. It's like the best idea wins, right? So it's, it's just radical transparency. Question authority. Don't be afraid to poke holes in my numbers. Don't be afraid to tell me because they are making big decisions. There are big ramifications. They don't want to be wrong. They don't. They they know they have blind spots, right? So their thing. And so, what what's wrong with that as a citizen? Someone has to make these decisions. So if we're going to make those decisions, we have to approach it from a bunch of different angles. We have to know our weaknesses. We have to know our Achilles heels. We have to know what we're doing right. We have to know where we're bleeding and what we're doing things wrong. And when I look at it. Um, I, cause I mean, I feel so blessed to have been born here. I mean, right. You could be born, you hit the lottery if you're born in the United States compared to where you've been in like Brazil. I mean, you know, you've got a lot of stories about that. And it's like people in America that the sad thing is that's one thing I would put that in my top five. Like what's, what's hurting us. People are born here and they don't realize how much of a jackpot they hit, right? They just don't have any sense of that because a lot of them haven't traveled. They haven't seen the way it is in some other places. They don't, they're, they're sort of blind to the opportunity. But the other, the other big things, Robert, I think our materialism, our general material, obsession with materialism has, is, is really hurting us and holding us back. Um, you know, you have places even in the inner cities where I grew up where, you know, people would, you know, are, are wearing $150 shoes and they have expensive iPhone. And they barely have any money for anything. They're, they're, 
you know, they're, they're buying in, you know, even in the poorest places, they're buying in in the materialism. We are ingrained with it and we're ingrained with this sense of all these other intangible qualities. Because when I hear you, when you talk about education, there's a lot, that's a very broad umbrella, right? We're talking about a lot of intangible qualities and a sort of classic, a way you carry yourself. We're talking about a code and an ethic, an ethos. We're not just, you know, in America, it's almost like, look, if you're going to make it, if you just make a lot of money and you don't go to jail, you've made it. You're somebody. Like, it's pretty much, that's pretty much like, that's the scoreboard. It's like, dude, you kill it. You make it well financially here. And that, to me, that's one of our blind spots. It's like so material. And what's interesting is this time right now is like slapping us in the face, like reminding us like, dude, your material can go in and, in a, you know, it can go overnight for most of us. And the other thing that I look at, which I consider a blind spot that I would love to see us address, I think this is the perfect opportunity, is we just have so many physically unhealthy people, man. We have so many people, and again, mentally too, because people are just, di they bury their head in digital nonsense and whatever, and negative storyline after negative storyline and, and argue on Facebook. But when I look at healthy, I think that, that scares me because we have a lot of unhealthy people with, that are chronically sick. And that, it to me, is a big concern because healthcare is, I think, 18% of gross domestic product, okay? It's like 18%, bro, it's gonna keep going up. I mean, especially in light of this. So government, government is like 20 to 25% of all the GDP itself, okay? So government, funding, you talk about like everything, all these big inventions coming out of government and government spending and government subsidized and military industrial compound. So you got, you got government, which is like, 20, 20, 25% of the GDP. You got healthcare that's pushing 20%. That's probably going to go 20. That's half the economy, Rob. You know, it's like, and most of the stuff with, with healthcare is people sick, people on prescriptions, people going, running down to the doctor, people obese, people diabetic, people cancer. Like it's, it's through the roof, like with, with sick people. And, and, and all these problems you're mentioning, Frank, like it all me, all goes back to the same thing is that it's you know people can't criticize anything outside of that framework that the call conversation started with it's got it's like you know whatever my team says is right whatever your team says is wrong and once you get trapped there you really don't make any progress I feel like just you know you're, you're you're not looking at things past that that discussion like just who's taking the healthcare there's things that don't come up in that conversation Democrats don't bring it up you know, Sanders did to a degree, like, I think he's, like, a little outside of the framework, which is one reason why the Democratic Party hated him, because he was outside of that, of that status quo of what the Democrats stand for. He's, you know, seen as a radical to us, what the rest of the world is listening to, and is going, like, a pretty moderate guy to me, you know, it's just over here, it's just the thing that got so, we've been so removed from the roots of economic policies that have made the U.S. a wealthy country. We're very removed from it. We've never been so... Um, we've never had more and less government in, 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 in our time. Like the U.S. Like, people are calling for, you know, get government out of your life, but we've never had so little. Like, and when the government doesn't intervene, it's normally in favor of the private sector, rarely in, in favor of the American middle class. But the conversation has been very misconstrued over, over time, and people have a really hard time seeing it outside of the, the standard framework. And, you know, I, I, it comes out of this, man. Like, it comes down to being able to, you know, think independently, not be affiliated with this party or that party, but just really look at things critically and independently. 
you know, I, I mean, try, like, I find myself agreeing with Trump all the time. I have, like, friends are liberal that get super angry. Like, how can you be like, no, I, he's right about it. Even Bolsonaro in Brazil, I consider to be a monster. Like, every now and then he'll say something, I'll think, he's right. Again, it doesn't mean I agree with everything he says. But, well, like, this, 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 this really is because, where we like, belong. It's, it's, it's the team, it's the team mentality. Yes, yes, yes. so detrimental yes. to the culture. It's a blind, blind loyalty. So I would say for me, so a little bit about me. I worked on a Democratic gubernatorial campaign, a guy named Paris Glendening, who was a two-term governor in Maryland, a Democrat, of course. And I worked on his election campaign when I was in college. I have never, uh, and I, you know, I went and lobbied. I lobbied senators. I lo lo lobbied Congress people about environmental legislation and recycling legislation in college. So I was very active. And then for the past 25 years, Rob, I have never voted. I haven't voted for an independent. I haven't voted for a libertarian. I haven't voted Democrat nor Republican. I consider myself a true independent, a true free thinker. And when I see things and say, again, to me, a good, honest person looks at things and says, well, that's a good point by the libs right there, the liberals. That's a pretty good point by the, by the Republicans. Hey, the president makes a good point there. Hey, I think the president's wrong on this. Hey, I think this. Like, and, 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 and again, we're operating a lot of times on limited information, so we don't have you know, all the information. Because even as a journalist, this is a really key principle for people listening, and this is a very important thing. As a journalist, you always know more than you can print. Even with their biases, whatever, you always know more than you can print. You always do because they don't want to burn bridges. They don't want to like burn the source, and then it's like they then they'll have no sources, right? They get, word gets around, and then so you always know more than you can print. So, but but you're you're exactly like you're you're raising a good point with this tribalism. Um, so I, I guess that the impression I, I want to move on, but I want to leave people with the impression there, which is, I think Rob, and where you and I are going is, we shouldn't just be just you know, loyal to this one tribe or whatever, there's a lot of good points being made by a lot of different factions and we just sort of take the best from each strand because the, the bottom line is we have to learn to get along. Anyway. We can't, when we don't want, you know, we, we, we have to learn. This country, which is so divided, it seems so divided now, has to come together and the only way it's coming together is if we can sort of air these things out, learn to disagree, just like we do in the fight sports, by the way, perfect analogy. We beat the mess out of each other. We push each other to the brink. You expose me. You expose my weaknesses. You get the better of me. And then what do we do? We, after class, we're pouring sweat. We sit there and you show me, hey, Frank, this is what I tapped you with. This is, what, this is exactly what I did to you. You see, I'm teaching you. Or you go, you go to lunch, you go to dinner with that person. Like that's, that's really... I think that that's where we need to get, where we're like, we realize we're all in this together. This is our, collectively, our country, and we have to, at some point, come together, and it can't just be, right now, two narratives, Republican this, re Democrat that, Republican media, Democrat media. Um, but, but by the way, let's shift gears, because I, I got a few more questions, and then we'll, and then we'll get out of here, but this is a... This is a, uh, a, um, a really good one. I want you to tell me, because this is going off subject now, but this is a story. I've never had you on the record talking about this one, but I want to get this story. There's a story when you were back with Team Braza that, and this is, this is jujitsu, you were back there with some of the greats, and there's a story where guys would be driving, you know, they would leave practice, they would all get in a car, they'd cram in a car, 
and guy, it, the car would be like pretty quiet, and then they would go around the car and say, you know, and they would just say a number. You know, I was like, uh, five, ten, you know, seven. And that number referred to how many times Robert Drysdale had tapped him. These are some of the, I'm not going to say the name, you know, whatever, but these are some of the biggest names in fight sports. And is there, is that a real story, Rob? I mean, um, you know, tell us a little bit about the Braza days and is that a real, have you ever heard that story? Say this, but 
You could bottle it up and drink it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, 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 you're stuck, not, you know, I'm not necessarily happy because, you know, you always be like, oh, I missed that speed or I didn't have right, it, right, you know, right. as many times as I thought I should have. But, you know, it is, it is a very good feeling to be that dominant, like something you love so much and mean so much to you, you know. Um, and at some point, man, I don't know, like it went from that, like the competitiveness in me just kind of shifted. You know, it has to do with my health and my retirement and all that. And I think I still am very competitive in a lot of ways. But like, if I don't win on the match anymore, it's okay. Well, Whereas, it's Robert. It's a it's. Ago, I would have lost my mind. It's it's very heavy though to to go around with that degree of competitive fire and what some people will call competitive greatness. It gets very heavy. I mean, it's it's a lot to carry because again, it burns both ways. That candle burns both ways, and um, you know, heavy lies the crown. So. Um, you know, at some point, a lot of people, I mean, Dan Gable's kind of kept it, but I don't know that he's going to win any happy and fulfilled competitions, right, on a life level, but he's sort of kept that, you talk to him 30-some years later, and things still haunt him, and the Larry Owings still, but, you know, it's interesting, I just interviewed, so a couple of things, Michael Jordan was in the news recently, I mean, they just, the last dance, they had a big documentary on him, and one of the criticisms of Jordan was that he wasn't more involved with like social causes and social issues like a Muhammad Ali or a LeBron James or, or even a Colin Kaepernick. They're like, well, he had the, he had this big stage, and and you know why did why didn't he do more to raise awareness of certain issues? And he basically said, listen, you know, um, I'm just I'm I was just focused on being the the greatest you know basketball player on the planet. That that was my focus. My focus was on winning, and I, I know that that he said I know that's selfish. But that's where my focus was. And and that speaks a little bit to what you're saying, which is the reality is to be the best, whether you're Tom Brady, anybody, there is a lot of selfishness there. Because if you're not selfish, then your brain tends to be, you know, you tend to be distracted. Your brain's, you know, you're thinking about too many things. You're thinking about social issues and you're not thinking about the playbook. You're not thinking about your competition. You only have so much attention. Your attention is, is a currency. Your attention is a premium, a budget. And you only have so much of that. And the more you're putting it somewhere else, you know, while you're not thinking about fighting or how to win and strategizing, somebody else is. And, and there's, a, there's an athlete, she's an elite wrestler. She's now, she's a 2020 Olympic team hopeful, but now, of course, 2020 has been moved to 2021 because of COVID. And her and I were talking about this, like, what's the thrill? And a lot of people out there who aren't, who've never trained in the fight sports, who've never trained high-level wrestling, who've never trained high-level jiu-jitsu, they're not going to understand. It's going to be like ugly what I'm about to say. You're going to understand it fully um, because it's, it speaks to what you just said. But we're like, you know, it sounds ugly, but, but there's, a, there's a small percent that gets it, which is like there is such a thrill. It sounds ugly, but there's such a thrill to dominating. It is, it is like you were saying, it's a high. And to sit there as a grappler or even like a, I can imagine as a Jordan or as a Brady – to sit there and dominate legally and consensually in a certain environment. We're not talking about pillaging and, 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 and raiding. We're not talking about, you know, spreading injustice and violence around the world. But consenting people, consenting athletes, there is there is there are very few thrills like that there's this urge, there's this wiring in us to dominate. And when you do that in a practice, and when you have your way and you're like, wait. Julie and I were talking about this. When you can feel your opponent break, 
even your training partners, when you can feel them break, bro, that you already know. I mean, you're already on the other end of this. You're like, dude, the thrill, like the thrill of that. When you feel, when you feel something give, you're sitting there, you're going, you're, you're giving everything. They're giving everything, and you can feel them start to lose energy, start to lose fight. Oh no, yeah, you smell the blood. You could feel that, like what? You could feel that, like a like a like a shark seeing blood. Yeah, you like a shark seeing blood. And so, that sounds selfish. That sounds violent. That sounds ugly. But that does speak to all of these different ranges of human emotions. You can have someone who's a fantastic person. Yeah. Here's the thing, Frank. Like something like that has a bad and I think because you know we, we live in this this, this, this morality that the framework of morality we live in it's selfishness is always bad vanity is always bad and I think for the most part yes but they're also human emotions and if they're there they're there for a reason whether you believe in God or whether you believe in natural selection or whatever the case you know they're there for a reason if God created us God put it there if natural selection you know gave that that, that trait it's because at some point in our history it served a purpose so in, no matter how you look at life, it's there for a reason, right? And if it's there for a reason, it's part of who you are. Now, once again, like, I'm not in favor of pillaging and, you know, and, and, and violence in the, in the meaningful sense of the word, but, you know, to consenting adults, I think that is a safe and healthy way to express an aspect of, of human nature. Like, I think combat and, 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 and grappling, like little kids grapple. You put, you'll teach them. You put two toddlers in a room, next thing you know, they're grappling. You know, these are very, very primal instincts. You have dogs grappling, yeah. And if they're part of our nature, like, what's wrong with it? You know, I think that we should embrace it and, you know, and reinforce something that is defining in the the species sense of the word. If it's what we're all doing, it's something we've been always doing. Like, how long have we been grappling? Like, because there are references in the Bible to grappling, right? Yeah, it's it's interesting. You... how many old texts talk about grappling? So if it's clearly been around for a long, long time, right? What is actually bad about the fact that I want to beat the person in front of me? And then after that, we can go eat an acai and we're best friends. It's not personal. There's no negative emotion involved. There's only a sense of self-conquering. You are a vehicle for my self-conquering. That's all it is. It's not personal. Yeah. You're a mirror. You're a baby, in a lot of ways a mirror. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting because when I would interview athletes and you know train with them, and then I would ask them, you know, and try to get sort of into their psyche, and you'd hear them, you know, why are you doing this? Well, the most common answer was, uh, you know, I I'm just competitive. I like to win. I'm just real competitive, and I'm like, well, that's actually not. You know, if we peel that back, that's not really what's there. You know, it's like nobody, hardly anybody, very few people would be like, I just love to dominate. I just love, you know, Brady, if Tom Brady, like when you start going, you peel it back, you're like, you're going to get to some level of like, nah, it's like, you're not serious. Like Julia Salata was saying to me, one of her coaches, it's like, no, if you're, if you just want to win, you're not really serious. You know, Peter Thiel says this and I, and by the way, I am not being a proponent. Like if you take this to, to extremes, it is very dangerous on a, you know, on a political level. On, I mean, it's dangerous for societies, right? That there, there has to be a balance point. But I remember Peter Thiel going, I think it was Stanford University, and Peter Thiel's a multi-billionaire, you know, PayPal and some other big companies, and it's very interesting to listen to. A lot of people wouldn't like him, but he's, but he's fascinating to listen to, and I don't agree with everything Peter Thiel says, but one thing he would say is, like, he would say, now, I would take umbrage with Peter Thiel on this, but there's a lot to learn when you listen to him, and he would see, I remember he told, I think it was Stanford MBAs, and he was like, listen, 
If you're not serious about Monopoly, you're not serious about winning at this level. Get out. Like, basically, that was his thing, right? And, and, and whether people like that or not, he speaks for a lot of mega, uh, powerful business people, entrepreneurs. He's speaking for a lot of them. They're, they're playing for big stakes. And similarly, right? And, and we know there can be an ugly side of that. There can be ugly ramifications, and that's a whole other discussion. But I'm just pointing out, and I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm saying he said that. He said it on the record. And it's something to ponder, and it just shows you the sort of the mindset of like, look, Frank, if I don't have this mindset, I think a Peter Thiel would say, if I don't have this mindset, I'm going to get bumped. I could be, I could lose a lot, or I could lose, you know, most of what I have, whatever, right? In his mind, at least, right? In his psyche. And the same thing with like Julia was telling me with some of the great coaches she worked with is like, look, if you're just out to win, that's not enough. Like if you're not out to dominate, you're just not serious. Like you're not serious on an elite level. If your goal isn't domination, and so it sounds, it sounds a lot worse than it is. But when you're in there training, like you said, when you look at the respect between athletes and even rivals, and you look at, um, because again, Rob, the other thing is too, a lot of us might, who might be, who might enjoy some of the domination aspect of it, we might enjoy the thrill of that, we might enjoy the natural high of that. We're all a work in progress. So as we evolve, like you said, we don't just stay there. We could be, you know, you, you've done a lot for some of the poor kids in, in, in Brazil and letting them train for free and taking people in. And, and there, people, you know, you have to look. There's a lot of different layers to people. And so to just assume and see one aspect of that guy or that girl as an athlete, that is not necessarily a total picture. But, but getting to this larger point, which is, and I would say to somebody, like, if you're not, you're not serious about like really bringing the heat and really like trying to be dominant. You know, you, you can still train jujitsu. It could be wonderful for you. You could be happy. But if you're serious about being world class, uh, uh, look, you, you got to have that. You got you got to have that. You know, you got to have that. That's so what we would call killer instinct. Not really killer, but loosely termed killer instinct. You got to have a gear.
family a lot of that energy and competitiveness in a good way, in a healthy way. And we do have a lot of that, but I think it's not enough. I think that there should be a bigger incentive to that because I think that it would be a cheap way of solving a lot of long-term problems that we have, socially speaking. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. It's one of the premises of the the first uh, TEDx talk that I gave, which is you know jujitsu for a better world, no doubt about it. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting, and you said something that is that rings so true, which is when when I say these things, I say these things as a work in progress, meaning they were experiences I've evolved. I mean, if you follow me on if you follow me on social media and Facebook, I know you do. You and I are friends. And, you know, I'm like Mr. Mr. You know, peace and positivity and I'm, I'm beside rivers and, and out in nature and writing poetry and, you know, singing love songs. And, and so I'm in a different phase. I'm sort of at that advanced like Musashi phase where, but again, it's part of living a rich, full, dynamic life and experiencing a lot of things and trying to find that balance point. Not, and I have lived, I was not God's gift to jujitsu or fighting by any means, but I have lived in that life. I lived that life of suffering, of sacrifice, of grueling training. I put everything into it. I had tons of serious injuries. I kept coming. I dug as deep as I could, and the chips fell where they may. I understand a warrior psyche. I can say that. I lived that. I didn't live it as like, hey, I'm the conqueror of conquerors. Now it's the greatest thing on two feet, but I walked bar outside of a war zone right a war zone is a whole nother level but in terms of just the hand-to-hand push your body to the brink as an athlete that whole warrior ethos i've done that and that was valuable and now i view it and you and i have talked about this as a balance point where it's like okay now i'm at a point like you were saying with your students how can i share this how can i be more gentle in some ways how can i be more positive in some ways how can i how can i give more how can i forgive better how can i be more unconditional it's about rounding it out right but i i've lived sort of that like you and i both are similar in that in that realm that we're ultra ultra competitive i would actually say that you and i in our nature and we're still evolving but you're talking about two guys that are i wouldn't even say top one percent ultra competitive i would say you're talking about like you know a decimal a fraction of a one percent like ultra competitive we're you know we're the kind of guys like we, if something doesn't go right in practice or whatever, we're going to drive home. We're going to, you know, we're, we're that guy, you know, it bothers us a lot. And, and there's a balance point. Cause I, I want to ask you this, Robert. So do you think we're, this is interesting. You won the ADCC. I mean, that's a, that's as big as you can win in the, in the, you know, in the grappling sports other than, you know, wrestling with an Olympic gold medal. So ADCC absolute champion. Do you think that you, that the competitive, the ultra competitive Rob is a happy Rob? What's the price of that? Is that the, is that, do you think you could be happier and more fulfilled away from that? Ironically, even though, is that a happy Rob? Even though that was a successful Rob, that was an alpha Rob, that was the top of the mountain for a brief moment. But is that, was that a happy and contented Rob? It's funny, it's like I ask myself like that question a lot and the problem with aspiring is that no matter how much it's never enough. Like, you, there is that conundrum. Like you can't really get around that. Like you, you aspire, you, you you suffer because you want more and then you get that and then you want more. It's like it's never enough. But I think that like it's a problem of 
of them is like happiness in a meaningful way. And I, my competitive years in jiu-jitsu were my happiest, the happiest years of my life. You know, I, because nothing else mattered. Like, we like, talk about meaning and purpose in life. Man, like, what, there's nothing that, that compares. Like, it was just like, everything was noise for me. Everything was noise. People like, I was at ADD all day, just dreaming about sweeps and winning and, you know, there's a lot. It was such a happy place. It was absolutely beautiful. It doesn't mean I wasn't always, I was always content. Like there'd be days I get home and I'd be punching the wall. Like I'd be angry at myself. Like there was that too. There was this expectation that I created for myself, but it coexisted with the meaningful experience of knowing that I was doing what I loved and I was privileged enough to do it well, and that I was, you know, I had purpose in life. And you, know, I mean, you, you, you only look, think about these things in retrospect. At the time. You're too focused to even think about it. But in retrospect, I can easily say that it was the happiest, being competitive was the happiest period of my life, even though I wasn't always content with myself. So I draw that, that, that distinction, you know. And, man, like there's this, um, it's very difficult to replace that for instance. Very difficult to replace. Like being with my children is an experience that is, you know, magical, of course, and you can't replace it. There's certain things you just can't replace, but having something that was as meaningful as that, it's, it's hard to replace. Like you know, I, I there's there's this poem that I really like. It's called Marchi Vida Severina by João Cabral de Melo, the Brazilian poet, and and he described this scene where it's just absolutely beautiful. They're talking about life and hardship, and you know, and and he, he goes he uses the term Hidayus Judita, which means patches of life. Like and it's basically talking life without purpose is not it's not a life, it's just patches of life. You get little pieces of it, you know, and and of course, you know, I feel like overall I think I'm a happy and, you know, person, like I feel fulfilled in a lot of ways, but it's difficult to replace that void of something you're so fiercely passionate about. Like it's not something you find twice in life. Maybe you do. I don't know. Like, I mean, I think we, I, I, I think that a disadvantage of jiu-jitsu is so contingent on physical health. You know, I really wish that I, my passion had been something like writing, or I could really like writing, but like, be as passionate about writing as I am about jiu-jitsu because you can write from the time you learn how to write to the day you die. <laughs> you know, like, there's some things that you can be passionate about that don't require being young. But, like, jiu-jitsu is very hard on your body. I mean, it's very hard on your body, so there's a light to it, you know? And I, coaching is fun. My documentary is fun. But it's hard. Like, I don't I don't think, I don't get a kick out of making money like other people do. Like, other people, like, oh, you make a million dollars or so. I don't think if I were a millionaire, I, I don't think it would change the way I see myself. And I mean, it'd be nice, but it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be meaningful in a deeper way. So, now, really, um, really, I think, yeah. 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 So no, and and you're you're right. There's definitely um, a semantical gamer because happy. It's 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 you know some people could say, well, look, is happy even the goal? Is happy even the point? Right? Like just just living and just pursuing your passions and just being like happy is not always. It's not always a fair measure, even that in and of itself. Right? I have to pick some verbiage, but but just happy. Happy could be, you know, Dan Gable might not look happy, but it's like you know he's. He feels pretty damn good about like what he did, and what you know, he might not walk around looking happy, but it's like he knows what he did, and he's at deep down, he's feeling good about it, or he's feeling fulfilled, but he might not be Mister Happy, right? He ain't the happiest guy you've ever met, but 
he still did something that's like, wow, that's a stain you just don't wash away, you know. But let's go to one other story. We told this story on the podcast last time, uh, Two Black Belts and a Mic. People should check that out. This is Frank Forza with Robert Drysdale. We told the story, uh, and this this is so important for people out there listening, right? Man, we told the story. I think about this. First of all, I thought about this long before that, but you and Frank Mir just sort of crystallize it. It's a very poignant moment, but I think about I've thought about this, you know, years ago. I think about this now, which is we all think we have this destinationitis, and we all think that well, when I get there, and when I achieve this, and when I do this. I'll be happier, I'll be more fulfilled, and I'll, I'll, I'll get there, and I'll be somebody, and yada, yada, yada. And then you see sort of these people in your, you know, in your community, and they're down, and they're, they're just humbly living their lives, and they're happier than the billionaire who's trying to take over the world, right? They're, they're 10 times happier, 10 times more fulfilled, um, 10 times more generous. And so tell us the story, remind us of the story, you and Frank Mir few years back, and uh, Frank Mir makes an observation. Uh, what was that? I'm giving a little more background. That was the fisher. That was the fisherman. Remember the guy who's fishing and and, and he and oh, the fisherman. Okay, the fisherman. Story, yeah. Yeah, and the and the basic for people that, you know, maybe are hearing that for the first time, the basic point of that is, you know, a lot of people are running like a hamster in a wheel in a, in a circle chasing their own tail, and, and they need all these things, they need all these material things, they need these accolades, they need acknowledgments, they need attention, they need whatever, social media likes, and you have, and, 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 it's, and then when they get there, even if they do, they, they make the... The hundred million, they have the cars, they have the likes, they have whatever. And are they really worth emulating? Are they really the role models when you've got people in your own zip code or your parents or your grandparents, whatever, that are happy, fulfilled, and they're like and they don't need all of the all of the all of the rat race or all of the outside accolades to feel that? Who who's smarter? I mean who's who's smarter and who's more efficient? Like is the person who's got all the material stuff who's who needs that, or is it the person who's like, hey, I've I've got paradise here. I've got paradise in my in my own little zip code. I've got paradise. Is that the problem, Frank, is that our, the, we have created a 
movie, the, the, the Wall Street, it's the game, kid. It's not the money. Right? If that's your thing, like, hey, that's not my thing. Well, yeah, yeah. Everyone's convinced that that is their thing, and it's not. Maybe your thing is art. Maybe your thing is music. Maybe your thing is jujitsu. And then, of course, you all have to make money. But I think that people who aren't passionate about money have been convinced that that's what they got to do with their lives. And even myself, you know, like, you know, once again, I do like money. I do want to make money. But if I told you I dream, I went to bed dreaming about it every night, I'd be lying. I don't think it's ever happened. I'm not going to think about it. I went to bed, put my head on the pillow and think, you know, how much money I'm going to make tomorrow. Yeah, it just doesn't, it's not, it's never been a thought process, you know? So, you know, you got to pursue the things that are meaningful to you. And if money is that thing, then that's what you've got to do. Right. But I think that, you know, a lot of people have been convinced that that's what they need to do because that's what everyone else is doing. So it's more of a follow the herd mentality than it is really following that they're, with their, you know, yeah, the, the, it's corny to stay follow your heart, but I think right. there's a lot of wisdom to that. You know, and I tell myself this all the time because I find myself doing things that I don't like and that I'm not good at. And I'm like, Rob, why don't you just focus on what you love and what you're good at? You know, the problem is like, you know, all these pay bills, there's that. So you have to balance your passions with, you know, some some responsibility. I got to pay child support, you know, I got, I got mortgage, I got, you know, I got big boy bills, which is, you know, fine, but. You know, you got to balance it out with little things that are truly that you, they're truly meaningful to you, whatever those. Be. Yeah, I I remember I went the vast majority of my life not materialistic. Money was not a thing. I was doing, you know, I was doing my wrestling. I was doing my jujitsu. I was in love with journalism. I was sleeping on the floors. I was chasing down good stories. I was trying to win awards. I was trying to win uh, grappling competitions. And, uh, and I was single-minded and I, you know, I did some poetry and some music and that, that was it. And I was not money motivated. And then after my divorce, there were literally about three to four years there where I was so like, okay, you know, I was realizing that my athletic career was winding down. The injuries were racking up and out and, you know, and I had had a divorce and I had been hammered financially. And I just realized like, wow, you know you just need to make a lot of money. Like you just need to. And also it would be a new, you know, I was like, you need a new challenge. And so I was very, I remember my girlfriend at the time, you know, we would talk and she'd have to listen to me. And I was like, so, you know, trying to manifest it. Like I want to make so much money and I want to this and this and this. And I was so like, it was gross. It was like, you know, two to three years of just like gross. Um, you know, I want to make a lot of money. And now in the past couple years where I've really, you know, where you sort of hit a rock bottom and you don't like some things about yourself and you're, you know, you're really honing in on who you are, what's your purpose, why are you here, what are you born to do, what are, how, what do you want to write, these new chapters of your life, this new story, this whiteboard you have, what do you want to write on it? And I really personally, for me personally, it really is like, I believe like for me, spiritual is the greatest wealth. It's these, in, it's these, uh, these intangible things and the spirit things and these some of these things are ineffable or they're very deeply intuitive and it's hard to even articulate them and there's a peace of mind there there's a balance right because I've always felt like I had to prove something or I had to be good enough or I you know I wanted to be worthy or I had to beat everybody I had to be the most alpha or this or that and now I'm just like like you were like going back to where we talked about the beginning of this podcast it's like can you just be like, if you're just in solitude, if you're just in stillness, can you feel peace? Can you be entertained? Can you be engaged? Can you be fully engaged with a book? Can you be 
writing and pen to paper or just the company of good people? Can you turn it off and just feel like this peace? And to me, that's like gold. I mean, you know, that peace, this peace that I've never known in my whole life coming from Baltimore. It's your own applause. It's your own Yeah, applause. yeah. You should be able to look and, and, and Rob. And be happy with your trade regardless yeah. of people, you know, and what other people think. It's I, great if other people like you what you do. Yeah. And they like you and they like you. But the most important audience is, is yourself and how you feel. And, and I like think, yeah. I think a lot of that enslavement is self-imposed. Like it's self-enslavement. Right. It's like nobody did that to me. I did that to myself. I bought into a certain paradigm. And again, I'm not saying there are some wonderful things that came out of that. You and I have talked about ego and there are some wonderful things that came out of like coming out of Baltimore, like me having an ego and a chip on my shoulder like that protected me a lot of times, too. Like it kept people like, dude, this guy's a little crazy. Don't mess with him. Like, you don't you know, he. He, he he might take you out, you know, he might beat you up, he might beat your ass. So like there were, you know, there were a lot of good things. I mean, there were things athletically that came out of like having a little swag or having the chip on my shoulder. Like I got positive acknowledgement for the first time, you know? So like there's a lot of good things. And, and I view it, Rob, like at this stage of my life, um, which, you know, I, I think, I think that I, I feel a lot younger than my birth certificate says. I have a birthday in a couple of days, but I feel a lot younger. But I look at it and I'm like, it's not like, I don't even look so much like past, present, future. I just look at it like it just is. It just is. Like we're just this long, we break things up into chapters, but it just is. And it's just, it's just living this full, dynamic, rich life, living like the warrior, living like the poet, living like the, the dominator, living like the peacemaker. Like it's like a full life where you... And then you try to put it together, you know, you make a recipe at the end. And it's like, it's in, in a way, it's beautiful because you get to see it from so many angles. And in a lot of ways, it does equip you to come to the table with more solutions because you can see, I, I remember, and I think you're going to re relate to this. We, you and I have talked about this over lunches before where, you know, everybody picks on the business person and says, oh, the greedy business person, the greedy this, they're making so much money and, and they should this and that. And then if for anybody out there, whoever dares to open up their own small business or even a business that makes it bigger, when you're actually like what you're going through now, where you're, you know, you're, 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 you're tip dipping in your savings, you're not making any money. There's a lot of uncertainty. You just opened a new, you know, to just a new facility in Henderson, you're eating it. And everybody thinks it's so, you know, Mr. Moneybucks is screwing everybody over. And there is a lot of that in the world, but I would recommend it would be awesome if everybody had to run their own business would realize how many different, you know, uh, hands there are in your in your pockets and how hard it is and how tight money is. And like it, it, it makes you at least it, it makes you at least see some of that side or you can still that doesn't mean there's not greed. That doesn't mean there's not excess, but it makes you at least understand like if you run your own business like, OK, like let me let me compromise with this person cuz it's not easy right it's easy to you could be doing well and it's easy to go under it's easy to lose market share it things happen just oh like, yeah it's it's um you know there's there's a it's a science to it and there's a lot of like you know even when you're right you're wrong and putting up with things and doing things and so a lot of times you just got to do what's best for the business which is not always the morally right thing you know, like I've been in that situation where I feel like I'm, you know, I, I'm not rewarding the right person because it's the best thing for the business. You know, it doesn't happen all the time. But you confront with situations like that where you don't do 
you know, you do, you go against your heart because it's what makes sense for the business. So there's, there's, there's all that, man. It's not a, it's not an easy, I think some people just deal with it better. Like to me, like I'm always questioning these things. So there's, um, it always becomes a more of a food for thought than just like a, and like a, a, an instinctual reaction. I know, you know, people are really good with business. They don't even think of it. They just make the right decision for the business. You right. Without question. Like I, I, I can't do that, which probably means I'll be broke my whole life, which is okay. I'm not, you know, and it's not, I don't have the aspiration to be Jeff Bezos. And, you know, I, I, it's, it's, um, I do look for things that, you know, that we are fulfilling, like more and more, like, even though like I still work a lot because I mostly, I enjoy my work for the most part. Um, it's funny. It's like, it's more the work itself that I appreciate the accomplishment. Like if it doesn't make money, first of all, it's not, it's not life changing to me in that, in that sense. You know, I thought, of course I like it, but how to explain it? Like, I don't, it's, you know, do it. If I wanted to make money, I wouldn't be doing jujitsu to begin with. I think that's like the first and the best way to say it is if that if that were the most important thing in the world, right? To me, it would be I'd be at Wall Street, I'd be you know some land developer somewhere, but like I can't see myself doing that. Like man, I, I wouldn't trade my life for that life. Like I imagine what like some of these godly, some of these CEOs live, and I'm like, I don't know if I want that life. I yeah, okay, you got a nice house everywhere you go, but so what? Like my room is pretty nice too. Yeah, I got a decent view. Well, it's it's crazy. It's it's crazy what's what's happening in jujitsu. It's crazy though how many and how many instructors. Again, relatively speaking, you have probably got hundreds that are actually making a lot of money now. Like, it, and and you didn't. You got in so early, and so did I. When there was just no money to be had, you couldn't really make a living, and it was just a crazy, terrible decision. Other than the fact that you loved it and you came from a pure space. But now, I mean, we are seeing there there are millionaires in this sport, and it and before this all happened, this is a big curveball. But before all this happened, you're like, my God, like there's there's some millionaires now being produced in the sport, and there's a lot of people making a living uh, off of it. And now, of course, this is the you know the unforeseen uh, event. But but Robert, let's let's go um, to we're 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 winding down here probably the last. Uh, five minutes yeah, or I so. Go like, like five minutes okay, five, five minutes. Okay, so really quick, tell us in the next forty-five seconds your documentary. You got a documentary coming out. Just tell us how you know. Uh, really quick in thirty seconds, what's the documentary about? How where can people find it online? Uh, it's not out yet. We've been producing for well, we approaching three years now soon. Um, a documentary called Closed Guard, the Origins of Jiu-Jitsu in Brazil. We wanted to tell, retell Jiu-Jitsu history in a more accurate way. We felt that the official narrative wasn't um, congruent with the, the facts that we knew. I think there's a lot, there's been a, a, a renaissance of, of research uh, in Jiu-Jitsu history since 2012, since the digitizing of the Brazilian National Library. And you know, this renaissance led to a lot of academic work, a lot of, like, some really cool stuff that came out of it, and then we felt that that was challenging the official narrative that, you know, that I call it a linear uh, narrative, right? You get that top-down sort of narrative that goes, Jigoro Kano, Maeda, um, you know, Carlos Gracie, Julio, everyone else, same thing, right? And we, in that, in what we wanted to tell was something that was a little more in tune with reality, it was a little more bushy, it wasn't linear. You know, it was a bush. It was a little more complex than a straight line. And, you know, we found that that um, 
You know, Kano never taught Maeda. Everyone assumes that Kano taught Maeda, but Kano was never his coach. Different generation, right? We we learned that, you know, there were Brazilians that outranked Carlos under Maeda. At least two that we know of. I mean, I sit back and think of like at least six that we know of, probably more. Um, you know, Carlos, during that early stage in, in the Amazon, Carlos Chris does not play a very significant role. It's a very, very... It's either non-existent or very small. You know, that's in between those two. And, you know, Carlos is a man with ambition, so he does play a role in the story. Um, you know, and we just want to add new characters. I think the Japanese were underplayed. I think that other Jiu-Jitsu players were underplayed, other Brazilians. I think the influence of catch wrestling is unheard of. Uh, the influence of the circus is not something people think about. The impact of historical events that aren't really directly related to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but if it didn't happen, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu wouldn't exist. Right. So our story, you know, starts with, uh, we were going to start with the, the Sengoku era and the rise of the Tokugawas, and then like, wait, we're going way back. That's completely unnecessary. Mm-hmm. It's not the point. We don't have a soundbite for it. And I don't know anything about that period, so let's just skip that. So we decided mm-hmm. to start, not that I know much about any of it, I'm not a professional historian, I just know more than most people because I've been involved in this for, for quite some time now. Right. But we have the uh, um, we have the, uh, the invasion of Japan by Commodore Perry, and you know that that is a starting point of friction between the East and West. And that most that movement of friction is what's going to lead to the birth of judo. Judo is influenced not only by Japanese traditional arts and sumo, but also by Western wrestling, Western philosophy, Western ideas of education that are not Japanese. These were these ideas of education as you go to Konoha, the martial arts as a means of forming individuals, right? That is not Japanese. That is that is a Western concept. So he's modernizing old, you know, older things in Japan, like older techniques, and he's creating a vehicle for for marrying, you know, creating a bond between the old and new and this change in Japan. Right? So it's, 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 there's a lot of historical movement to play a role. I'll give you another the Russo-Japanese war. The Russo-Japanese war plays, it's important because that's when Japan becomes relevant in the world. Like, wait a second, these, these, the small little island in the Pacific defeated large Russia, how is that possible? Right? And then after that, there's this boom of interest in Jiu-Jitsu. Like the first Jiu-Jitsu boom takes place early in the 20th century. And these Japanese are traveling all over the world, they're teaching. And there's Japanese immigration to Brazil, which is massive because Uncle Sam closed the border to the Japanese, so they go to Brazil instead. And then there's the rubber boom in Brazil. The rubber boom, you know, like Brazil's providing more, uh, the rubber to the Allies during World War One. So there's this rush of, you know, people going to the Amazon to work in the, in the, uh, uh, the rubber. And Nomad is one of them. So the rubber boom plays a role. So, like, you get all these historical events that have to exist for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu to exist, right? Mm. And we just, it, we wanted to do something that wasn't an attack. It wasn't diminishing anyone, but it was accurate. It was... We we spent a, we done a lot of consulting with historians and they've been very very helpful. Their narratives and conclusions. Let me rephrase that. Their conclusions aren't always congruent. A lot of times they you know they, they look at the same data and they interpret it slightly differently. Right. And you know it kind of falls on me to be the judge of all of that and it's a lot of responsibility. But I I think I'm I'm, I'm biased in all this. I really truly feel that like probably. You know, maybe someone in the future is going to say, oh, Rob, you were wrong about this because it's this little piece of evidence that we didn't have at the time. That may happen. But I think that overall, what's going to come across is a fair picture of how Brazil did just develop and result. Out of its, off of its, you know, its, its mothership is the 
Um, when when do you anticipate that this could be out, Rob? We're making a big push now. Uh, a lot of it is off my hands, to be honest. It's on my, my team, the production. Uh, the 20, 2020, though, or no? No, I think this summer. Like, there's a good chance we finish this summer. That's what we're aiming for. We would like to finish during the pandemic because that'd be a good time just because everyone's dying for content. There's nothing out there, you know? But, um, I, you know, this, I think it's fair to say, you know, the summer, but it's, I don't want to promise because, like, sometimes, like, we're close to finishing and we got to reduce something, and that's happened a few times. It's been far more complicated than anticipated, and, but, like, because I want to do it right, I'm not rushing it. Like, I'm nice. favoring quality over, you know, speeding things and just not doing it right. Gotcha. Um, final thing. We'll both address this. We talked a lot, you know, we were looking at the, the state of the world today, the uncertainty and possible solutions. Um, why are you optimistic? What's the optimistic, Rob? I mean, we talked about some of the, you know, the, 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 the tougher aspects, the challenges, but let's leave people with what reason is there to be optimistic about what lies ahead of us? What, what makes you optimistic? I sometimes like we all have our bad days and you know I got had more than a few and I always remind myself like the hardship I endure is nothing compared to what people have endured in the past I always tell myself we're we're all people and we all have that inner strength right so we have been surviving like we have made it through so much all right we I mean compared to what is what is what is coronavirus compared to the bubonic plague that wiped out a third of Europe you know so you know we have been surviving all this time at the end, we always figure it out, right? And then we become a footnote in history, and we move on, and we've always been able to move forward. So it's, it's, just, it's the same. Like, that's what I tell myself. I am just a small little part of the history. I'm just doing what I'm meant to be doing. Like, I'm meant to be a part of the history, and I'm meant to do what my nature tells me. My nature tells me to fight and do X, Y, and Z and tell the just history as accurately as possible. That's my nature. That's my call. But that's what I want to do. So that's what I got to do. I got to do what nature tells me. Right, I, I was born with a brain that, that aspires to do these things, so that's what I got to strive for. But at the end of the day, you're a particle in history, and and that's fine. If it is what it is, and you just you just carry on and you play your part. And then one day I'm not going to be here, and my kids will carry on, and their kids after that. And it's it's always going to be like you can find, you can look at a world history, man. Like we've always had these events. Like this is the end of the world, you know. Even though I think that we've never had it better, and I think we've been dealing with the pandemic fairly well, I think that technology has helped us a lot. And you know, even though like globalization probably helps spread the virus faster than ever, but it just shows some vulnerabilities and some flaws in our civilization. But you know, I, I think you got to stay up to this because you got to do what you got to do. You got to you know you got to hold the line. And tough times breed tough people, and you need those tough times too, man. You don't know you don't know bad until you know. Uh, um, you don't know good until you know bad. You know, you, you need that the testing ground, testing moments. You know, they, they strengthen you and you look back. And most people, when they have bad experiences, they can look back and go, think that they, they're thankful for that experience. Maybe not all experiences, but, you know, for myself, most, I, I have, I've never had a traumatic life. So my hard moments were not hard compared to most people. But they always made me better. So... You know, I think we just got to look forward and not, not be negative and just smile in the face of, you know, dire situations. And no matter how 
bad things get. You just got to smile and move forward. Yeah, I would say in closing that my optimism, there's a lot of concern. This is a can of worms. There's a lot of concern. I, I feel like I can even see a lot of the chessboard. I can see a lot of the pieces that are being moved. And and uh, so I'm very concerned. Um, but the part of me that is very optimistic, like you said, is it, it has been a lot worse in history for a lot of people. I mean, this is not nearly as, I mean, there, you know, a lot of points in history, it was a lot, lot, lot worse. They were, at, they went through a lot worse. They went through massacres. They went through a lot less freedoms. Um, and so I'm grateful that, I'm grateful that this, this time helps illuminate even more, what's important, what's essential. And it's like, a, I call it the great pause, right? It's the great pause where time stops and you realize what's important and what, how are you gonna spend your day? Like if you just had a whiteboard and you just had a pen and a paper or like you with your guitar or you with your books or you with your daughters and you just realize that all these extra things that we're chasing, all this trophyism, all these accolades, it's like, man, it just strips it away and it, it strips the layers bare and you just look at things naked and you're like, no, this is what really matters. So. I'm grateful that a lot of people are getting that. I already had that, but I'm grateful that a lot of people are getting that introspection, that reflection. Um, and I think for me personally, Rob, it's it's about a spiritual thing where, like you said, we get stronger now. We get we 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 get better. And you realize, Frank, as strong as you are, as tough as you think you've been. Like you, have, I have so much room for improvement on a spiritual level, on a forgiveness level, Rob. Like even the people, some of the people that are doing things now that I'm not going to like. There's a lot coming down the pike that someone like me, Mr. Organic, is not going to like. But I'm like, I have to find it in my heart to forgive, to to move on, to be stronger, and and I'm going to have to do that. So I'm grateful for a lot of the intangibles, a lot of the forgiveness, a lot of the perspective for a lot of the peace because I feel a tremendous peace now and you realize that we don't have control. We think we have so much control of this, that, the other and we want control, right? That's what we all want. We want so much control and you realize how you control yourself but you don't have, it. it's so much of this is out of our control. Your only thing you control is your reaction, your perspective, your mind, your thoughts and, and that's really all you got and that's where I put a lot of my focus now. I put it inward spiritual um and i'm optimistic final thing i'm optimistic that more people will wake up to realize that they have a lot of power over their healthy living and their habits that they have a lot of power that they can do more this is the time like i said if people don't want to be healthy now what will it take like if if somebody doesn't wake up like hey i need to like start living cleaner i need to have healthier habits i need to eat better if they don't, if it, if they're not having that aha moment now, they're they're never gonna get. It. I don't know what they're waiting for, you know. So I feel like right here, right now, it won't be the majority, but more people will wake up and say, you know what, I can do things a different way. There, you know, I don't have to just play into this tribalism or this Republican versus liberal, whatever, or you know, this media versus that media. That there's a better way and and be free thinking. And, and go off the grid more for some of the healthy living solutions and that. So I'm optimistic that there will be more people um, waking up. So anyway, two and a half hours in the books. Very easy with Robert Drysdale. Robert, we'll do another one maybe in the next couple of weeks. We'll follow up. We'll talk a little bit more about your documentary. Um, 
thank you so much. I'll, I'll put this up in the next couple days, and uh, I think people will really enjoy it. How do they How do they reach you, Rob? How do people reach you if they need to reach you, by the way, for like an email? Um, just find me on social media, Robert Drysdale, at Robert Drysdale, JJ. And uh, that's probably the way to find me. And I'm uh, Frankie at FrankieForza.com. Be blessed, everybody. May the Forza be with you. Robert Drysdale, thank you so much. We will talk again soon, my friend. Thank you, Frank. Always a pleasure. Bye, bud.